Hello, everyone. Wampler here. Uh, before we get into the show, we have uh, a couple of messages for you, starting with uh, a new sponsor that we've, uh, quote unquote, gotten into bed with as of late. Uh, this is an adult toy store. So uh, some of the ad you're about to hear may contain language that is inappropriate for anyone under the age of 18. And since this is our first one of these, we just wanted to give you a heads up. All of that said, let's get to it. Uh, your sex toys may do the job, but are they fun? Naughty Bits are high-quality, beautifully designed sex toys, but most of all, they will make you smile downstairs and up. With a wide selection of bedside products to get you off, like the skull-shaped bonehead vibrator, or the yum-bum ice cream cone butt plug, or the bad bitch, the motherfucker, the screwnicorn, the cumball machine, or the suck buddy, Naughty Bits puts the F.U. back in fun. Ask for them at your favorite stores and check out the whole collection at MyNaughtyBits.com. Have you tested any of those out, Scott? No, not yet. My team is working on it. <laughs> uh, well, one thing that we have read and can put our full support and weight behind is, of course, our overlords over at Fangoria and the magazine that they put out. This classic magazine has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. The highly collectible publication comes right to your door four times a year, and each issue of Fangoria is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future. With all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your esteemed KingCast hosts from time to time. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in a promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. And with all of that said, let's get this party started. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Well, sometimes, that is better. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to the King Cast's Night Shift of 100 Stars. And now, here are your hosts, Eric Vespi and Scott Wampler. Hello, hello, thank you. Thank you. Very thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to the King Cast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I'm Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And like that creepy announcer guy just said, we are your hosts. You know, Scott, it's a huge week for us here at KingCast HQ. Oh, you said it, Eric. This is Hollywood's most glamorous night, and we're celebrating ourselves, our guests, and the listeners at home with an evening of entertainment that none of us will ever forget. Class, elegance, king, what more could anyone ask for in an anniversary special? Not much, says I, and just wait till you hear who we have lined up for this one. Man, I'm so excited for everybody to listen to this. It's a veritable who's who of KingCast guests from our second year in operation, that's longtime favorites to beloved newcomers. We've really covered all of our bases here. Last year's anniversary special found us tackling the entirety of Stephen King's skeleton crew, while this year we'll be presenting each and every story in the Master of Horror's Night Shift. Each guest will have roughly five minutes to present their short story, and, uh, well, when the time runs out... Well, then we're going to play him off with an orchestra. And a good one, too. We spared no expense. 
Their time is indeed limited, though. So uh, let's jump right into it, shall we? Oh, yes. Everyone ready? Very well. On with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, here to present Stephen King's Jerusalem's Lot, Hannibal creator Ryan Fuller. Jerusalem's Lot is a fascinating short story that is a an addendum to the Salem's Lot legacy that takes place uh, in 1850, uh, a significant uh, departure from 1975, or whenever was Salem's Lot was was set, it was re- published in 1975, and. What's interesting here is that you you feel Bram Stoker's uh, influence on on both Salem's Lot and Jerusalem's Lot. In Salem's Lot, Stephen King has has publicly suggested that it is essentially a a hot mashup of uh, Thornton Wilder's Our Town and Bram Stoker's Dracula. And we get a little bit more Bram Stoker with Jerusalem's Lot because it feels like instead of being kind of directly inspired by Dracula, it's a little bit more inspired by Lair of the White Worm, which, you know, people might remember from the Ken Russell movie with Amanda Donahoe and the Cadillac-sized dildo that she carries around. (laughs) But there's something about taking the the vampirism of uh, Dracula and, and how it is explored in Salem's Lot and using the, the giant supernatural worm god entity from uh, Lair of the White Worm and having that kind of run through the terror of Jerusalem's Lot, which is another vampire story, but it's also kind of this wacky fuck your sister witchcraft kind of club <laughs> right. um, as well. So there, it feels like it's expanding uh, some of the more basic vampiric elements of Salem's Lot into into more culty, witchy, uh, wormy mm-hmm. kind of extrapolations yeah. that that feel like they're like clearly King is a student of Bram Stoker. Jerusalem's Lot is written in an epistolary fashion, just like uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula in terms of it's it's a collection of letters and how we're kind of getting the the story of of Charles Boone and his bad blood clan leading back to sort of Nosferatu, Mamas and Papas, (laughs) <laughs> that have stuck a claim in Jerusalem's lot, which would later become Salem's lot. Right. Yeah. Shortened to to Salem's lot from Jerusalem's lot. Yeah. Um, something that's interesting that you bring up, like with all the witchy shit, is like the Necronomicon is in this story, right? And lots of Lovecraft stuff. That there's like a reading that happens towards the end of the story where like Shoggoth are mentioned and all this stuff. So it's like he's melding all the like gothic horror into one like focused thing in the short story. Yeah, you have the 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 Devermis mist. Darius or mm-hmm. Mysterious? Uh, yep. I don't know yep. how you pronounce it. I've never heard anybody say it. 
So um, yeah, there is there. It's, it feels like it's taking the iconography of old evils and and reshaping them, suggesting that there is a greater, grander story uh, at it, at the root of Jerusalem's lot in terms of like it's just bad soil. Like once again, we have another. It's like the Marston House. There's a there's another like evil house that. Mm-hmm that has rats or something rat-like in the mm-hmm. walls, but the those, whatever's in the walls that they think are rats don't poop. So <laughs> there's, there, that's yeah. why, you know, everybody's like, huh, where are the droppings? And it kind of suggests that the, the rats may be vampiric because uh, in my experience, vampires don't poop. Um, so, they do. They do pee blood, though. We have figured this out thanks yes. to Night Flyer. So and yes. blood tears and all of those things. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, but there's there was something about the. Uh, it, it feels like Jurassic's Jurassic's Park. Jurassic's Park. Uh, uh, it feels like Jerusalem's lot is kind of it's, it's both a a boiled down version of of a Salem's lot story um and also kind of an expansion of the mythology of the vampires oh, yeah. within Salem's lot. Yeah. No, for sure. I I think it's really interesting that because Salem's lot the, that book is about okay, let's take this old-timey, gothic, castle-y thing and put it in the suburbs. And his writing style is very contemporary and modern. And here he's very much mirroring not just structure, but like the language of those like 1800s uh, gothic horror tales. It's like, it's almost like an exercise for him, it feels like. No, totally. Yeah, yeah. It, it, does, it does feel like a bit of a deconstruction, like a, like a, a, a kind of a, a scholarly deconstruction. Right of a lot of styles and in rereading it, I loved the worm that's underneath the chapel. And, you know, when they read from the Divermus Mysterious, uh, you know, it, it activates, or even when they touch the Necromonicon, uh, it becomes activated in some way. And uh, I've never read Lair of the White Worm, mm. um, but I love the Amanda Donahoe movie. <laughs> right. uh, so, you know, it was, I, I loved as a fan of Bram Stoker, not so big a fan that I read uh, Lair of the White Worm, but uh, of Stephen King's kind of deconstruction, deconstruction of a lot of Bram Stoker's styles. Mm. Um, and influences and seeing them kind of repurposed in this really tight short story. Yeah, it's a fairly long, I think it's one of the longest stories in this collection, but you're right, it does kind of go at a clip. And I think a lot of that's because of that uh, diary or writing letters element that that uh, uh, that is because it's like a short story that's already then broken up into more compact bite-sized chunks. Yeah. yeah, there's something super fun about the epistolary style where it's, you know, you get the first few letters where like, things are great. I love this place. And then it's like, rich, it's happening. I don't get it. And that's kind of like <laughs> the best part of those of those sort of mysteries that evolve through a series of, of letters or documents is that they they like something happens between letters in a way that ratchets up the the tension in the story in a big dramatic step forward that's always pleasing for me as a reader. And you've seen Chapel Wake. 
Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. Well, we watched some of it. If you've seen some of it, you, I assume you didn't stick with it. Yeah. Um, we watched the first. Uh, I, I mean, I guess I'm speaking for Eric here. I watched the first, I don't know, three or four episodes. And then I I just kind of fell off with it. it. It started losing my interest. And even though I was enjoying it when I was tuning in, it was just like I wasn't quite enjoying it enough to continue <laughs> tuning into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I finished them out and uh, it's a very inconsistent show. But yeah, it does like revisiting the short story going into this recording here. Uh, it, it kind of knocks me flat how like accurate and close they stick to it but they spread it out they draw that out over over a whole season and i think they're working on the second season now it's uh it's interesting they also kind of introduced the notion that like this book is is what drew the vampires to that area that there are vampires that were drawn to this book and the book is in salem's lot and uh, and so the implication is that Barlow and is drawn to Salem's Lot specifically because uh, the book is still there. So, right, and in Salem's Lot, in so, Salem's Lot, yeah, not not before he wasn't vacationing there in the eighteen hundreds and then went home and then came back for in the mid seventies. <laughs> I wonder if that is begging a continuation of the Salem's Lot story. Uh, just to see where this book is and, and that land, because mm -hmm. th we, we got a kind of a, a an additional Salem's Lot story, uh, didn't we? Where so yes, like, yeah, one it, for the road, this, yeah, one, one for yeah, the road. Right. It's in this collection, yeah. So uh, there's something about the the gift that keeps giving about the Salem's Lot mythology and and this town that I would be curious to see if that ever gets expanded upon. Uh, in you know whether it's the new adaptation, which I'm very excited about, it, it certainly makes sense that they could continue telling the story if they're if they're suggesting that this uh, you know the Vermis Mysterious book is is sort of the the rotten heart of uh, right. Salem's Lot, the cursed land, the cursed artifact. Yeah, I want you to have a little bit of time since we cut you off last time about um, the ending of the mist. Do you have anything that you want to say about the end of the mist, real quick? <laughs> Yeah, you're waiting for it, aren't I, you? I had to stop myself. <laughs> um, you know, I think what I, I think there is a version of that ending that could work, but for me, because it was like 30 seconds of screen time uh, before he shot all of his loved ones in the face. That are you like Maria? Maria? Yeah, it's it's it sounds Jurassic like a, it sounds like you're being played off by the orchestra, oh Brian, God. but. As always, this was an enchanting and enlightening conversation, and we thank you for being That's here. That's a trick question. You asked and me that so you could play me off. What's the point of fingers here? Um, you know, uh, you're most weird guests on the podcast. You're just... Thank you for being here, Brian. And now, here to present Stephen King's Graveyard Shift, Fuckboy Island creator, Elon Gale. Uh, hello. Um, I'm here to talk about Graveyard Shift, which is a tale of a man working in a factory in, sub, let's say, substandard condition um, <laughs> overnight. Yes. And he is, um, he is asked to work over the holiday weekend on clearing out what has to be one of the most uh, horrifying 
basements of a factory one could possibly imagine. There's rats and gunk and all kinds of debris. And as a germaphobe, it actually really, the whole story pained me throughout. <laughs> it, it was like, it was like looking at just too much blood all the time, the way that people feel that way. I just, I just really found the whole experience really disquieting, really uncomfortable. And it ends essentially with um, a full descent into madness and chaos when a sub-basement is discovered full of all kinds of fucked up rats and bats and, and, um, and everyone does not have a good time. Um, every, <laughs> everyone in the entire story is having a bad time all the time, yes. except for Hall, who for a few brief moments, uh, who's our, who's our protagonist, I suppose for a few brief moments, I think he feels very alive, but I think it's an unhealthy part of him that feels that. Elaborate on that. This is a story I, I recommend highly, except for if you don't like descriptions of things that are unsanitary, which again, really... <laughs> It really was hard for me, and it felt almost as if the universe was pulling a, a cruel prank. I kept a bottle of Purell in my hands the entire time and just washed endlessly. Uh, what's the most disgusting job you've ever had? Oh, man. Um, I'm the creator of Fuckboy Island. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Congrats no, I mean, on season I, two, by the uh, way. Catering. I used to do catering. Yeah. And, um, the and that's the growth yeah, because it's the you the little tents that you would set up behind a location. There was just always we were always in a dirty, gross parking lot making <laughs> oversized ravioli, and it, it, I didn't I didn't like it. I didn't like, the, and I would they would make me stand over a garbage trash bag for six hours just slicing bagels in half into a trash bag, not even out of a trash bag, and into a, a food bag. Huh. So that's probably it. And I also worked at Hollywood Video, which was great <laughs> because it wasn't blockbuster. I worked at Hollywood Video. pretended to be. Yeah. They made me wear a popcorn vest, and I didn't like that. <laughs> that is uh, pretty disgusting. I, I didn't have a popcorn vest. I had one that had, like, uh, director's chairs and, like, uh, cartoons, Hollywood signs and Did stuff Did you have the, the red bow tie or the black bow tie? I think it's the black is what I had, but we never wore Good it in our God. store. God. Really? Oh, yeah. We were, we were, we, it was like a, a, it was a tight ship. We had to answer the phone with like maybe a 60 second response that included Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, <laughs> every single time. Hello, thanks for calling Hollywood Video in Westwood Village in the corner of Gailey and Wilshire, um, where you can pre order <laughs> Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, and be registered to win free rentals for a year. I'm Elon. <laughs> how can I help you? And the manager, Art, would call. Uh, at least once a day to make sure we answered the phone that way. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, uh, real real quick, this is funny because you mentioned like the most disgusting job and the most disgusting thing that happened uh, on a job for me was at that Hollywood video because there we had a, a bathroom that the guests would use from time to time. But it wasn't like a bathroom. It was like the one bathroom in the store. So it was like the staff bathroom that we let yeah. the guests use. And uh, one night I was closing and... I noticed the uh, water kind of seeping out from underneath the door and I go mm. in there and somebody had clogged the toilet with the dis most disgusting shit ever. Uh, and uh, I, I stopped the water running, but I looked around. I'm like, Nope, 
And I left a note saying, you don't pay me enough to, to clean that up. And my manager got so fucking mad at me. He yelled at me the next day and just like, well, you, I, I take number. Well, what, what do you pay for? I'm like, I'm not a janitor. It's a Hawk video or VHS <laughs> tapes. I'm, I'm not a janitor. I don't, I don't, uh, well, I don't, I don't deal with water. Is- this is the sequel to Graveyard Shift in a lot of ways. It was. <laughs> More modern yes. take. Yes, there, there, there was a rodent of unusual size somewhere in Yeah. <laughs> Did you like the story, though? I loved it. I thought it, I mean, I really found it disgusting, and I really am a germaphobe, so it really fucked me up. And yeah. it was a fun, visceral thrill ride for that reason. There's a fun adaptation of it that you should probably check out. It, check out if you like the story. It's got uh, but it, I will have Dura. to see a lot of the things I imagined, though. I I, I suppose. Well, I can't ima- I don't imagine they're as <laughs> disgusting as whatever you came up with as the creator <laughs> of Fuckboy Island. That's fair. but you know, um, you know, it's always worse in your head. But it's a good, a good slice of of '90s cheese. I, I I think you would find something in it to enjoy. Yeah. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take uh, you up on that. I'll see if and, I can yeah, order a DVD uh, via mail. Yes, yeah, and you do yeah. You do, do get like a nice slice of Brad Dorff, like just swinging for the fences, being a, a crazed actor. And, it, you know, he's, he's just really going for it with the drama. Oh. Yeah. Maybe you'll like it like you liked uh, Night Flyer. Speaking I of like which, yeah. speaking of which, your, your episode on the Night Flyer turned out to be one of our more popular ones over the last several months. Entirely and, unsurprising. Yeah, well... <laughs> Oh, we know <laughs> you never know, you know, sometimes, but, uh, people love that one. And I'm curious if you heard from anyone after, uh, after we aired that. I did. I actually, I heard from a, like a lot of people I hadn't heard from in a long time that were like, Oh, I didn't know you read books. Oh, and, yeah. and, Stings. and, but the, I didn't get to hear, you know, I, I hoped, uh, I don't talk to my father very often and I hoped cause I know he, he listens to King cast. I kind of hoped. Oh, he does. After, yeah, I mean, I, I I read that on one of his Facebook posts, but oh. I, we haven't oh, ever shit. actually talked about it. So I kind of hoped that he would reach out and be like, "Oh, I listened to you talking to the guys uh, about Night Flyer," um, but no. Um, well, this is a perfect oh. a perfect place for you to say something to him if you want. If you want yeah, to break the ice, that? this is this is your time. Yeah, yeah okay. totally. This, yeah, um, you know, Dad, if you're if you're listening, um, you know, I know it's been a little a little while since we've had a chance to connect and I just kind of think it'd be great if um, we could get back in touch. Um, I haven't seen you in a long time and, you know, I think Molly and I are starting to you know, plan a wedding and I think it'd be good to have you there. So um, if you're listening, um, please do, uh, you know, we call my phone number. Uh, all the same. You want three? And now, here to present Stephen King's Night Surf is such-and-such director, Joe Lynch. Thank you, guys. And it is an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to be here again uh, to discuss a story that I, to be honest, have completely forgotten about uh, Mm -hmm. until you guys said, hey, read the story. (laughs) Come come back (laughs) on the show. Uh, You know, and and considering that I'm in pre-production now on a film, you know, I had to stop everything and make sure that I got to uh, to take a moment with you know Unky Steve, and uh, and and kind of dive back in into this very interesting story called Night Surf, which originally um, was published back in ni- good old nineteen sixty nine, the summer of love, um, but didn't show up again, didn't rear its ugly head 
um, until Night Shift, the collection came out in the late seventies. Long story short, um, you know, I, I, the best way to describe this is almost like the endless summer meets like, like, or literally like <laughs> crashes into the stand. Right. Um, it's like Bruce Brown and King and Richard Linklater go to hell together all on one long wave. So it sets, uh, it's set in New Hampshire, uh, which is a little weird. You know, it's, it's not quite, it's, it's, you know, King County adjacent, but, um, it's on Anson beach and a bunch of, uh, former college students who are a bunch of friends. We got Bernie and needles, um, and Susie, uh, they have pretty much, um, survived captain trips. Uh, this is one of the first times that I can remember, um, where Captain Captain Trips or the A six virus, as as they kind of keep referencing it, right. um, showed up in one of his stories, and you know it, it's it is literally a slice of life, or shall I say, a slice of death, and they're all <laughs> out on the beach and they're going to go on a night surf, and you know it, the thing that I love, and that's it, by the way, that's the whole fucking story, you know, it is, <laughs> it feels, but th- this is the this is the the genius of Stephen King, you know, even back then was that he was able to give us these little slices of life that can be self-contained, yet you can go back and look at these as um, almost side stories, you know, they're, oh, they're totally. the, the side quills, if you will, to, you know, bigger tales, you know, and, and he <laughs> If there was anybody who knows how to, you know, expand a world, it's King. And yet he was doing it even back then, but doing it in these like small bite-sized little pieces. And that's the thing that makes this so special is that it's just three people hanging out in a world that feels very much like ours within the pandemic. It's a hangout story missed the post, post-apocalypse, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the thing that makes it so much fun. And yet it gets incredibly dark and i think everything now is being seen through the purview of a pandemic and being seen through the purview of you know a plague that we have just gone through and that's you know everything from movies to tv to you know short stories that were written almost 50 years ago and they still this story feels as relevant today as it you know maybe maybe might not have ever felt you know and that that's the thing that's crazy is that you know right now we're in a weird time where like i'm in mississippi right now and it is as if the pandemic never happened there are people you know walking around you know no masks no Give vaccination card. You don't have to pull your vaccination card out before you go into a restaurant and everything. It has kind of gone back to status quo. And just a year ago, we were going, oh my God, there's finally a vaccine. And a year before that, it's holy shit, when is this thing going to end? You know, it's not that long ago. And yet these characters treat the plague as if it was just kind of, well, you got it or you don't. And does Needles have it? By the way, all these names are t- classic King from Susie <laughs> to Needles to Bernie. It's like, you know, he's already establishing a very um, cohesive formula and a voice, even in a short story like this. Sure. But I just want to interrupt very quickly and, and point out that Needles is actually the same character that Flea played in the uh, Back to the Future franchise in this story. That is a little known fact. You know what? Wouldn't be surprised. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and you know, it's funny. Now I want to go back and read it again and hear that discernible flea kind of list because you totally could get it in that. You know, What's the matter, Susie? Chicken. <laughs> now I want to make that movie. You know, actually, funny enough, this was this was a dollar baby. Someone actually mm-hmm. made this, um, you know, about 15, 20 years ago. I've never seen it. Yeah, a lot um, of these are dollar babies. 
I love those, you know, but, and this, this is one of those stories that would completely fit in that short story realm. Sometimes King stories, you know, as we all know, can be very bloated. Sometimes they can be, you know, so like the short stories to me are always the best ways to transfer into a feature film, you know, whereas the, the, the novels are usually like, unless you have an eight part miniseries, you're kind of fucked and you're going to truncate something and something could be missed. This one, this is one of those few short stories that actually feels like it could be a short film. You don't need to expand it into anything longer than an hour. You know, it, it really is. It's 20 minutes at best. Right. And that yeah, 20 and minutes, you feel like, you, I, don't, I don't know how he does it, but he completely makes you feel like you're in that world by doing so little, by just having these characters having a chat. There's very little about right. the Hong Kong flu and, you know, or do you have A6 or A2? Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, it does end if you on have a, a two. If no. you had A2, then you're going to be immune to A6, which sounds a whole hell of a lot like a lot of the COVID talk. Oh, it's, it's totally fine. If you caught the early COVID, you're, you're totally fine with the new one. But if yeah. you have Omicron, bro, yeah. <laughs> your face is going to melt off. Your asshole yeah. is going to melt into your legs. Yeah, um, yeah, no, but it's it, you, to your point. This is like very good early King, where every character is like kind of a a piece of shit and also sympathetic at the same time. Like the main guy that we hear from, very misogynistic. He, you know, he's really fucking has nothing. Doesn't want anything to do with the ladies there, but he does kind of want to have sex with them. But he doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And and uh, I don't know. It's it's you're you're right. This is like a very good early slice of uh, Stephen King kind of honing. The, I would almost here. want. I would almost want a big Wednesday treatment of this, and have Milius <laughs> take all of these characters <laughs> and make them, you know, fuck it, get Jan Mike Michael Vincent from back in the day, and get you know Billy Cat and stuff like that, or Busey, Busey as needles, Busey. done. Busey as like, needles. <laughs> I can totally see that, but, but still again, playing college kids. Yes. Oh, like now. Yeah, they play themselves now. It's like a Wet Hot American Summer, where there's like fifty year olds playing teenagers. <laughs> But that's, that is, again, that's the, the short genius of what King was able to do back then was he uses conversation and he uses inner monologue as ways to expound on the world around these characters doing a mundane thing, like going out for a fucking night surf, you know, yeah. and, and just by doing that, you walk away from that, you know, or you flip the last page and you're on to the next story, but you almost can't because you have to think about that ending. And I don't want to give that away for anyone who hasn't read it. But um, the ending ends on a classic King note where you go, oh, they're fucked. But you don't, but, but you don't need to go any further than that. Let the, right. let it just kind of simmer on, on the audience's chest. And, you know, and, and you almost want to go back to the world. And then you do with the stand. Now, yep. speaking of revealing things, we understand that you are going to use uh, this opportunity to announce your next film. You, 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 you've, you've said on this recording, you're, you're in Mississippi. That you're, yes, you're gearing up for something. So I am a. You know what? When you guys called and said we had to do this, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell production that we have to actually push a week because I needed to do the proper research for this episode. Right, um, we appreciate now, now, your dedication. Now, now we are, um, you know, we're we're a week out, and uh, I it's something I'm so excited to announce. I know that you guys are pretty much the greatest podcast to start. Um, you know. I, I, I'm going to keep going here because this is big news here. And, you know, no one else gets a chance to talk about this sort of thing except for me right now. So I'm going to announce it. 
It's the first time that anyone has talked about it. It's an exclusive, just a King cast. I am doing a Lovecraft movie, and it stars none other than... And now, here to present Stephen King's Eye in the Doorway, Hugo-nominated author Shiv Ramdas. Thank you. This is one of my favorite Stephen King stories, the tale of an astronaut called Arthur who goes off to visit Venus and comes back covered with golden orbs that look at the world through an alien perspective, thereby becoming only the second most terrifying use of the phrase the eyes have it since Congress. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Very succinct. Yes. Uh, This is the... The uh, illustration on the cover of this book is from this story. This is the right. one, the eyeballs in the hands, and and uh, it is legit one of very off putting. This is this is not quite the jaunt level, but it's it's in that ballpark of King just being like, "Well, this is bleak as hell, and you're gonna you're gonna enjoy it for twenty pages." <laughs> it's just wild fun, also in the sense that like it's King jumping onto that whole like so. This whole era was also the whole Venus zeitgeist. Everyone was obsessed with Venus at this point, like mid sixties, mid seventies. And what was this like seventy one, seventy three, something like that? This story. Um, yeah, it was published in in one of the titty mags, I think, in in the early seventy one. Yeah, have a year for the boys. Oh, interesting. It's pretty cool the way he decides to like just jump onto that and take a whole bunch of other elements and be like, you know what? Like, let's just do this. Everyone likes <laughs> everyone likes looking at things. Why not both? Oh, it's horrifying. I find the idea of eyeballs embedded in my hands very upsetting. Mm. And Ever since the, way, the gate. Yeah. And when he <laughs> yeah. Well, when uh when uh what's his name? Arthur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, when Arthur talks about like how it itches under the mm-hmm. bandages. Like, I'm just thinking of, like, the eyelashes or something, like, maybe brushing <laughs> against it or, like, the blinking against the band. Uh, it fucking drives me crazy. Mm. I have a I have a really weird phobia about eye shit, which we can't <laughs> get into right now because there's a long story that goes with that. But, yeah, that <laughs> freaks me right the fuck out. Really freaks me out is, like, when he starts talking about how he looks to the eyes in his hands. Mm-hmm. It's, like... There is something very, very disturbing about that, like looking at yourself from outside with your own body. Like, right, yes. Out-of-body experience is one thing, you know, like, but it's like my body is outside my body, looking at my body and judging my body and finding it wanting. <laughs> right. The, bo- the body itself is the view master for the body. Yeah. If that it is sense. the doorway for these aliens that are looking through and really they hate humans. And that's great. He's like, I can feel their hate. And so he has to like keep uh, his hands bandaged because right. when it's kind of like a hawk, when you uh, take the, the hood off of the hawk, then it goes and kills things. And if, if the eyes are revealed, they can take over his body and he'll like murder hobos and stuff. Uh, and I love that this is it's a sci-fi tale that is pretty much just about a dude like sitting and bullshitting with his, his buddy. Right. And his buddy just does not believe him. He, the buddy thinks he's confessing to murdering, you know, you know he's having a psychotic snap or whatever. And it, it, the whole thing culminates with him going like, OK, I guess I have to show you. And he shows him the hands and then uh, <laughs> and then it goes from there. <laughs> yeah, and, and then you also have that really classic thing of that era, which is that like your basic premise, which is these eyes and the hands. I'm not going to fucking explain how it happens. It just happened. Deal with it. Right. Like, I, yeah. I was exposed to some alien radiation. That's all you need like, to know. I was exposed to alien radiation. The other guy died. I got eyes on my hands. How these things actually <laughs> compute and work together, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Did you, 
one thing I, I uh, learned about this is that uh, this Czechoslovakian director got the rights to direct, to do a short film based on this mm. in 2009. Then it took him like eight years to actually get it made. And when he made it, he shot it all first person and used a, uh, a, a mime uh, the, to play the main character. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I'd like to see that shit. So there's actually another version of this they made in 2019, which won an award in the UK. For real? Yeah. Is it a dollar baby? Um, it it is also a first person short film because, like, I guess, what else can you do with this? <laughs> Are we sure this isn't the same thing? It may be, may, like, but I know this was a 2019 thing, so like, did it last that Are long? you sure it debuted in 2019, or it was just screened in 2019? It got the award in 2019. And mm. I think the film was made not that long before, but then it could be your film. Well, not your film. Well, yeah, if he if he shot it in 2017, it could have taken him quite a while to... I don't should know. Be. It sounds like it's probably the same thing somehow. Uh, Unless I know that keep... this has been adapted uh, a few times through the Dollar Baby program, okay. but I don't know how much. Yeah. So I cheated on Wikipedia, and apparently it has been adapted twice since the Czech guy, once by Dollar Baby and once by the British guy. So everyone uh, I'm right. looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simon Pierce. Stephen King makes everyone right. <laughs> yes. Everybody, <laughs> uh, by the time uh, everything's all said and done, we will have all made uh, an, an adaptation of I Am The Doorway. So, Did you ever think of that other thing in relation to the story? Like, what is it called? Like, Cold Hands, Warm Heart, I think it was called. Did you ever see that? It was like an episode of Twilight Zone or... No, it was Outer Limits. It was Outer Limits. Mm. I so, don't think so. It's funny because... So this is William Shatner as a space captain before Star Trek, and my personal <laughs> canon is this got him the job. So, <laughs> right. This is him. He goes to Venus in a shuttle, and it's obviously really hot in Venus. And when it comes back, he's basically cold for the rest of his life, and he starts mutating, and he gets webbed hands and shit. Mm. And then the mutations take over, and then he becomes Captain Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> and then he returns to Haddonfield, and oh, oh, that's a different thing. Yeah. And then he gets Twitter, and then the mutations really go wild, you know. <laughs> But then he ends uh, up back in space. Yeah. Yes. This has a, a really great ending, too, where the protagonist decides to cut off his hands uh, or burn off his. I think he sets it on fire first, but then he removes his hands and he's like essentially telling the story. And he's like, it's totally cool because I'm, you know, hooks can do a lot of things. Yeah, and yeah, I can yeah, get by. Like, and I like how he glosses over it. Hooks can do a lot of stuff. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, I can. Yeah, but he's just like, I can hold a pencil. He's like, and I can also pull the trigger on the shotgun because I'm about to fucking blow my brains out because eyes are starting to grow out of my chest. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, fuck, that's such a great, like, you know, I don't know, pulpy ending to this this story. Yes, it almost feels like it could have been longer. If you want, could could be, but that's the great thing about King short stories is that he ends them, uh, leaving you wanting a little bit more. So. Yeah, that tends to be the case. And like all his really good stuff, there's like five angles of like horrific stuff here. Like it it doesn't matter what your actual like appetite for being horrified is, like he will have you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now, Shiv, while while you're here, uh, we understand you have some exciting news to share. You've told us a tiny piece of this, but but nothing else. And and we wanted to help you spread the word with the uh, audience. We understand you're launching your own new podcast soon. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate the chance to get to talk about it. And especially Mm -hmm. here, because like you guys kind of inspired me to like finally go through with this. No, that's cool. That's nice to hear. 
Yeah, so I've decided to do this podcast, which is about a writer I've always looked up to. I grew up reading his work; his writing has inspired me. And I've just well, been, well, who's the uh, who's the writer? That's that's the beautiful part. Like Stephen King, conductor. <laughs> and here to present Stephen King's The Mangler is Stephen Graham Jones. The Mangler, Stephen King, 1972, came out in Cavalier Magazine and in Night Shift, 1978. The Mangler is a police officer, hunting, kind of stumbles into a bad scene at a laundry. There's a folding, <laughs> steaming winding machine that's been chewing people up, mm-hmm. and he gets on the trail of this thing and chases it down, finally confronts it, and lets it loose onto the world. Yeah. That there is you go. Very, very succinct and very true. Uh, have you seen the movie, the Toby Hooper movie? I don't, I don't think I ever have. I watched the trailer and I don't remember um, <laughs> Freddy Krueger being that old, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's in a real weird getup in that one. And uh, what we found in over the course of doing the show is that The Mangler is a lot of fun to talk about, but uh, just kind of a beating to sit through. Yeah, this goes yeah. doubly for the sequel too. There's like three of the fucking things. There is. There's Manglers. Wow. And Ted yeah, Le- multiple. Ted, Ted Levine was in that trailer too. That surprised me. Man. Yeah, he's the lead. Wow. So he's hunting, I guess. He is. He yeah. is a hunting. He is stumbling upon that bad scene you mentioned. Wow. wow. Nice. Uh, it's so, yeah, weird. I, so weird to go from James Gum to that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I know. His breakout Silence of the Lambs thing is the biggest movie ever, wins all the Oscars ever. And he gets his starring role, he gets his chance as a lead role, and and then it has to be this really crazy, bonkers, uh, as Scott said, a very difficult movie yeah. to watch. Yeah. But the, it the, must have been hard for the screenwriters, though, to come up with enough like story padding to stretch this out to feature length, you know? Oh, man. <laughs> and what they do is they like make this whole cult thing and uh, about like the town being prosperous and tied into, uh, you know, uh, a willful feeding of the working class into the machine and and all that, which is kind, yeah. kind of the subtext, a little bit of the, yeah. the story. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but it it's the way they do it is just so over the top and cheesy and like uh-huh. it's almost it's borderline ridiculous, like satire ridiculous, like Zucker Brothers. Yeah, ridiculous the way the way they go about it, especially with Robert England, where he's he's playing like a a demented Colonel Sanders accented, <laughs> <laughs> you know, dude on <laughs> with the robot leg. leg. Yeah, yeah. Or Man, some the, shit the, fun, like that. the funny thing about this this story is, had it come out a hundred years before, then it would be in the canon, deeply in the canon, because it would be like a screed against industrialization, you know, or right? Totally. Or automation. Yeah. Yeah. You, so, you mentioned that the uh, detective stumbles across uh, across a bad scene at this yeah. laundry. Yeah. Um, one thing that I have learned in the interactions you and I have all uh, have had up to this point is that uh, you have a uh, utterly horrific story for just about everything. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you have a good, uh, workplace accident story. Oh yeah. Um, one time I was chopping some wood actually with a big, a big old ax just swinging and swinging. And I'm, you know, when you, when you swing it, when you swing an ax, you slide, you have that one hand, you slide up to the head and you slide it down as you swing, you know? Yeah. Right. And, um, I didn't realize that the last hit had splintered that ax right up near the head. 
And so I slid my hand up and when it slid down, that little toothpick of a splinter went into my hand and it immediately got as wide as a handle. And that whole thing went through my hand and we had, what? To, break, had to break the axe handle off and I had to, had to go to the emergency room with the axe handle in my hand. And it was a big production. There. Well, I got to tell you, I am not disappointed. And I knew you, I knew you would have something just standing by for workplace accident yeah, um, yeah. that's incredible and yeah. were were there any spiders watching this as it was going on or? Uh, let me think it was spring i probably was but i didn't even take note of them they might have come and licked the blood afterwards i guess well maybe <laughs> maybe that's when they built that altar that you you mentioned when you yeah, uh, came on and talked about the outsider with us oh yeah the max headroom thing yeah i guess it's still there too but um you know the the mangler that this this laundry thing it makes me feel like king I mean, it feels like feet on the ground kind of details. You know, it feels like. Oh, for sure. Like, did 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 do y'all know? Did he ever work in a laundry? Yes, he did. Yeah, oh, absolutely okay. did. Yeah. Right. Pre-success, holy shit! I'm uh, need to make some money to pay the trailer rent yeah. and, and buy my kids medicine and stuff. That's yeah. He was doing that when he wasn't working at uh, uh, as a teacher. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He had to get that pink medicine, as he calls it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and I think his mom worked at a at an industrial laundry too. Like she oh, was. Nice. Yeah. yeah. All right. Man, yeah, know, so it's a very personal thing. Growing up, as you well, can tell, because as we mentioned, this was published in '72. Yeah. So this was uh, like super early, pre, way before Carrie came out. So a lot of these early stories are mm-hmm. very deeply connected to King because it's just what was around him, you know, at the time. Even Carrie was, you know, yeah. he saw bullying as a teacher, and yeah, and uh, for sure. rolled that and into the. It's kind of neat how this haunted object thing it can go both towards like um, the Overlook or Christine, but it can also go like to Maximum Overdrive. It can go like both directions. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. So your last novel, My Heart Is a Chainsaw, seemed to be a really big hit. You've got a sequel coming out next year, Don't Fear the Reaper, and I further understand that you are prepared to reveal the intimate details of the third book in this series today here on the king cast is that correct yeah, it's a it's a um what do you call it when it's a solitary thing it's a what is it <laughs> it's, a, it's a reveal um so we're back in indian lake and all the players <laughs> you expect to be there are there oh i'm sorry that's that is the orchestra which means that unfortunately we're gonna have to we're gonna have to follow up on all of, all of that later uh but but thank you for being here steven and we look forward to talking to you again And now, here to present Stephen King's The Boogeyman, the star of the upcoming The Boogeyman, David Dasmalchen. Good afternoon, guys. Hey, it's so good to be back in the uh, the Hallowed Hallows with you, gentlemen. And Yes, um, of course. Hi, hi. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to talk about The Boogeyman. Of course, um, you would be having just... Having uh, just filmed worked yes. on having uh, my children call me the boogeyman and having just worked on a film adaptation of the boogeyman and having lived in fear of the boogeyman my whole life, I think it's fitting that all roads have led to this moment where I will be on the King cast discussing the boogeyman. Um, mm, very well. I, Do it. I think I told you guys the last time I was on the show how much um, you know Night Shift was one of those summer reads by the pool when I was a kid that just totally haunted me and i loved that that all of the books in there but of course um we talked about night shift last time in the film adaptation of it there um has been some attempts at you know at film adaptations of the boogeyman which is probably the scariest story in the collection Mm. of night shift i don't know if you guys agree but what i found 
so compelling about it. Um, you know, the first time I read it was the idea of like, you know, wolves laying in sheep's clothing, no matter where we exist. And as somebody who grew up in a really, you know, religious environment where there was lots of wolves and sheep's clothing lurking mm. about, uh, and, and, and just the, the David Lynchian kind of dark approach to Midwest suburbia or even Northeast as in, in the case of the boogeyman suburbia, where it's like, everything looks safe and pristine, but underneath there's something dark cackling. Um, Loved this short story. It's a really dark, dark, dark visit into grief, loss, depression, and um, and what can happen, I think, to the human mind and spirit when it's pushed to extremes, especially considering the loss of, of loved ones. So that's... Uh, it's a rousing and warm uh, introduction, I guess, to uh, a story that is on the surface very scary and fun, but I also think is filled with all kinds of really deep metaphors about psychology and life. Can you present all of those metaphors to us within the next uh, four minutes or so? Three and a half minutes. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you, you the, the the story this this guy, this really simple guy named Lester, shows up. Um, at this psychologist's house um, or office to bear his soul and believes that the doctor will be able to help him because the doctor has recently experienced personal tragedy. And this, this character, Lester, who is haunted by the boogeyman, believes that it is tragedy and um, mourning that invites in this demonic creature called the boogeyman, which preys upon its victims and feeds off of their grief. And so that metaphor is quite simply one as old as time, but it's also one that's just so authentic. And anybody who's listening, who's lost somebody meaningful to them, which, you know, by the time you reach a certain age is almost all of us. I mean, during the pandemic, I lost both of my parents. And I will say that like, the grief and the sorrow and the depression that creeps in when you lose somebody you love, um, it can open a chasm where the shadows start to move in weird ways and you can feel really haunted. Um, and I think this story just nails it. I think that something I really like about this story is that it's all that that you said, but it's under the guise of just the monster in the closet. Right? This, the is, closet. this is the monster in the closet that all kids have had the, the, the thing in the unknown that's there and waiting to, to grab you. It's like next door neighbors to the thing under the bed, right? Yeah, Everybody yeah, yeah. has, has one of those. And the way that he presupposes like, yep. And it's real. Uh, but there's also another layer to the story that, that kind of hit me on this reread uh, for this uh, episode that I thought was really interesting. And that is that the guy Lester is kind of a piece of shit. He's casually racist. He's very misogynistic and you see everything from his point of view. And I thought it was King was doing this as a way to kind of show us that here was this dude who's unreliable it, on the surface. Anybody, if you're in the psychiatrist and listening to this, you think this guy killed his three kids. 1000%. Right? 1000%. Sure. Yeah. Like every excuse he has for it being the monster is like always on the heels of this kid was pissing me off and he wet the bed and did this, whatever. And then he ends up dead and you know, it was the boogeyman that did it. And then of course there's the big reveal at the end where, well, maybe the boogeyman does exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you did you have uh did you have a boogeyman as a kid? That like was somebody be my in the closet? Question, son of a bitch. 
yeah, of course. Anything that was a dark place when you're when you're but like I five, literally six, had this fear and I would have nightmares. I lived in the attic in our house in Kansas and I shared a room hmm. with my brother that my parents had converted into a bedroom and there was a little micro door that led to like a storage if you went into my closet there was like one of those small doors that led to a like a storage why space. do those exist why are they small doors like that so i had this constant fear of a little person who looked like frankenstein's monster a little person as frankenstein's monster that would come through that door at night and get me it was terrifying oh man that was my boogeyman I stayed in a rental house once in uh, Wellington where they had one of those little micro doors within a like a little closet. And whoever the fuck owned this house was a was a obvious monster because it was covered. That whole wall in the door was covered in in paint handprints of children. Oh, God. Come on. Now. Oh, that's that's definitely enough of that. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Scott? Before the time runs out, did you have a boogeyman? I did not. Um, Were ooh, you the boogeyman? Okay. You are. No, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't see like monsters in my closet or anything like that. Or, you know, I didn't like a foot dangling off the bed. I'll tell right. you that. There could be something under there. You don't know. Um, I got over that eventually, but, uh, yeah, no, no, not, not so much any of that, um, as a kid. Now, David, before we wrap up, would you be able to tell us how the feature film adaptation of the boogeyman ends? Well, of course. I mean, the most exciting thing about coming on today is being able to tell you guys exactly how oh, I wanted oh. to. But the end Go of ahead. the maybe you can get it out real quick. Well, okay, so it's the third act, and you're right in the middle. Guys, this is. I didn't die, for God's sake. That's fine. Okay. Well, thanks. That thanks is again. your time on the stage, but uh, we will have you back when the movie comes out. Here to present Stephen King's Gray Matter, Green Knight director. David Lowry. Good evening, everybody. I'm here to discuss Gray Matter. Gray Matter is a story of a bunch of old timers who've gathered at Henry's Night Owl to wait out a northerner that's blowing in. There's Bill and Bertie Connors and old Carl and, of course, Henry himself. And then they get another visitor, young Timmy Grenadine, the son of the local drunk Richie Grenadine. Normally, Timmy comes in every night to fetch his dad's case of beer, but tonight, Tonight, something seems to have gone terribly wrong. Uh-oh. Well, what's happened is that <laughs> Richie, while consuming his, uh, his nightly case of beer, uh, got a taste of something extra, something sour, something wrong in one of the cans of beer. And after consuming it, as you would, you know, just because some beer tastes bad doesn't mean you shouldn't finish drinking it, uh, <laughs> he begins to change. He begins to transform into something else. He begins to be subsumed by what you might call a superior organism, but one by human standards is uh, horrifyingly disgusting and, and, <laughs> and as per the title, uh, particularly gray. Yes. Yeah. He becomes this little blob creature. And it was funny that you, when you were breaking it down, I'm like, this is a running theme in this collection is like grumpy, older, New Englanders hunkering down from a storm and then somebody coming in needing help. Cause that's also in uh, one for the road. That's exactly mm-hmm. the same setup. Uh, that one has vampires and, but this one's uh, all about a blob monster. Blob uh, monster is great. I think, I think, you know, you wonder while you're reading uh, what was in that can of beer and it might've been some meteor shit. It could yeah. be. There's a, a, there's a, there's a, this is a good, a good sister parable to, uh, to the lonely <laughs> death of death of Jody Burrell. 
Yes, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, but Richie seems to enjoy the transformation a little bit more than Jordy did. That's one of the things I love. Well, he's drunk. <laughs> well, he is drunk, but he does say he enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, that feels good. And that's one of the things when you have transformations like this in in movies or in in books, very often the character who is being transformed into this writhing mass of matter sees themselves as becoming their true form. Like they see they feel like they're they're transforming into something better. And I was thinking about uh, probably the best example of this is Brundlefly. Yeah, And how you're looking at this horrifying, disgusting, vomiting, decaying version of Jeff Goldblum, but he sees himself <laughs> transforming, manifesting his truest, best possible form. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what's happening to Richie in this story. In, if we in, had Brown Fuller in here, he'd be talking all about, you know, <laughs> he'd be throwing all sorts of uh, trans allegories and stuff onto this onto this story. I, I would love to hear that. Um, I also... Would love to hear from you guys what you think about the Creepshow adaptation of this, which uh, mm-hmm. was, you know, a pretty accurate representation of yeah. what was on the page. It is. And I'm like shocked that they actually went to the story, but it, it works. It, it, it is. Yeah. You know, you can see the budget a little bit, obviously, yep. on it. But um, I think they changed it from a, a big snowstorm to like a hurricane or something. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, so it, it, I thought it was pretty inventive. Uh, I just, the thing that I really like about the story is that it's, uh, it may correct me if I'm wrong on this, cause it's been a minute since I've seen it, uh, is that like, it's this kid that goes in to buy his dad beer and they're just like cool with it. And I think in the adaptation, it's like a teenager. It's a teenager. Like, and that's the big, right. the, the, the one change that I also agree with. I don't know if you saw the um, Antlers, the Scott Cooper film, yeah. which is yeah, yeah. very similar in a lot of ways. Yes. If you imagine that little kid, that, that really yeah. like that kid who's like not had vitamin D for a year, uh, <laughs> gambling in this bar and being scared of something. There's a lot of parallels in that film to this story. And right. I, I kind of feel like if you combine the Creep Show episode with that movie, you would get the perfect uh, representation for of sure. what King. Yeah, so there, there's something that's tonally different when you know that there's been a kid living with this creature, you yes. know, this monster, than than you know some some dude who's you know out hot riding, rotting at night, you know that kind of kind of thing. You know, but getting that getting that blobby thing right on screen is tough, and I think you know yes. one of the best one of the best versions of it was Michael Rooker in Slither, yeah, uh, yes. which is sort of what I had in mind reading the story. But one of the yeah. things the creep show thing did so well was that tentacle hand that's not quite a hand, yes. which sort of looks like an arm with foreskin. And this weird tentacle thing comes out of it. That and the two girls in the bathtub who are decaying are truly horrific in that. And really, yeah. every now and then you see something in an adaptation that is just as terrifying as you imagined it on the page. And, and indeed, this uh, short story is, yeah. is a really terrifying one. One that really captures like that that wonderful colloquial down home voice that King often writes in, uh, which your recent guest, Bill Hader, summarized with the, you know, you know, <laughs> he eats cats. He eats like cats. when you drink too much beer and turn into a blob. <laughs> Precisely. That is, that is, that is the story in a nutshell. And, and I know we're getting close to the end, but I really want to bring up uh, something that I love that he does with these short stories in particular, and that's he leaves them ambiguous and on, on a cliffhanger. And on this one, uh, the two dudes at the that are selling the beer, they go to confront 
the the blob monster and one of them pulls out a gun and the everybody else runs and the guy's shooting the blob monster and and then the story ends with them sitting around going you know we're waiting to see who won is it yes are we? and and uh, i love that angle like i love that's that uh, thing that you can't really get away with with a novel but you can totally get away with, with the short story i know story. we're getting close i know we're getting close but you know we mentioned the 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 you know the folksy element that is encapsulated in the best sentence in the entire story, which is one of the things King does, you know, so well is he brings up these like things that evoke feelings and memories that we all understand. And and he actually starts it with the phrase, you know, and the, and the sentence is, you know how a cider house smells in summer? You never get the smell of apples out, but in the fall, it's all right because it smells tangy and sharp, <laughs> sharp enough to ream your nose right out. But in the summer, it just smells mean. This smell was like that. But a little bit worse. <laughs> and that is just quintessential Stephen King. For sure. Agreed. Now, uh, we understand you have a, an important announcement you wanted to make on the show today. Um, our understanding is that you are working on a sequel to one of your, your most loved movies. Can you, can you tell us about that a little bit? Yes, indeed. I think most people would anticipate that I'd be jumping right into Ghost Story too. But in fact, uh, we were looking at Green Knight and realizing that the story kind of ends on an open note. And so my collaborators and I are about to hop on a plane, head back to Ireland and start location scouting for Green Knight 2, which will pick up exactly where uh-huh. the movie left off. Oh, I'm, I'm and sorry. And reveal what happened when Sir Gawain was facing. <clears throat> yeah, you are getting orchestrated off the stage. I'm sorry. We're we're gonna have to let you go, but we look we look forward to the movie day. And now, here to present Stephen King's battleground, the good sun star Elijah Wood. Hello. So Battleground is a story of a man named Mr. Renshaw. You come to understand quite quickly uh, or surmise that he is a uh, a, a killer for hire, um, perhaps two jobs a year, I think. He's just coming off of an assignment, coming home to his apartment uh, to relax uh, after being paid handsomely for his work um, when he's given an envelope for his next assignment. Um, this is what he's very familiar with. Uh, but he also has a package. What I love about this short is it spends a fair amount of time with this package. And, and there's a passage of time over the course of uh, morning into afternoon into, into early evening as he very carefully sort of tries to decide what to do with this package uh, in, in case it, it contains a, an explosive device or something that might kill him. And then he opens this package and it is a box, uh, a military um, box of toy soldiers that um, then the moment that he opens it, the soldiers then uh, spill out uh, light, brought to life um, and begin attacking him. And the entire <laughs> short is a fight between a, a, a grown man <laughs> and tiny toy soldiers armed with real artillery. It really reminded me, there's a great, there was a great book that I remember growing up reading that was actually later, I think Frank Oz turned it into a film, The Indian mm. in the Cupboard, where obviously it would be the Native American in the cupboard now. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, it, this short really reminded me of that. That 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 story is about a toy, a toy, you know, plastic toy cowboys and Indians, and this magical cupboard that this boy discovers that he puts the Indian in the cupboard, and and suddenly these things come to life. And it's also just about well, I don't need to get into that story. The point is, <laughs> um, uh, is that it it 
it reminded me of that. It's that same device, except this is like, you know, genuine war art- artillery um, trying to kill this man. It's funny, prior to the to where it, it really escalates towards the end of the short, very early on, you sort of imagine yourself in that scenario and you think, well, you know, I could swat these things away like flies. It's not going to, you know, these bullets aren't going to penetrate me until you realize that the helicopters are going for his eyes. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> this poses a real fucking serious risk. Up until that point, you just think, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. Right. He's going to take care of this so easily. And then you're like, oh, no, this is actually a genuine threat. This this dude. And when the when the, the rocket launcher comes out, you realize that it could take his head off. You're like, oh, uh-huh. fuck. He's got to yeah. get the fuck out of this apartment and figure out a plan. It's right. great. And the, yeah, it's not the just end, a military weapons. It's military tactics. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Totally. And that that last button after the the massive flash with there's two there's two things that happen. One. There's a couple, and I love that the, there's like a weird subtext to the couple that they might be having an affair. Mm-hmm. Did you pick up on that? It's very mm. subtle. The, no. the couple, um, they see a big flash. The woman says, they're holding hands in the in the hallway, and the woman says, uh, or the man says, we should call the police. And she said, no, we shouldn't do that. Uh, we don't want to be found out or something. It's just like mm-hmm. a subtle reference to the fact that they might oh, be I see, yeah. having an affair. <laughs> Right. It's like so unnecessary, and it, it, but it's just this funny detail. <laughs> um, and then the the button is that there was actually a nuclear device uh, included in the package, and I just yeah. thought that was such a lovely, beautiful, very funny button to the story. And you don't really know what happens. There's a massive flash. You sort of assume that everyone dies, including Mister Renshaw. Um, mm-hmm. It's unclear. Cause it sort of leaves it with this, this like couple that doesn't want to be found out. And then this reveal of there having been a nuclear device, which is why there was a giant explosion to begin with. Right. It's great. It's, it's such a, it's such a great short. And the, just the ratcheting up of tension from it feeling almost minor and sort of insignificant and silly to uh-huh. being to being seriously dangerous to where he may not get out of this is right. really clever. Right. Um, I do like the, I do like also that it starts as you said where he's examining it like it's in, in it's explosive or something and he's yeah. he's tr- treating it as a real life grounded suspicious hitman would treat something, yes. right? The, yes. A suspicious package and then it just happens to be filled with the most ridiculous thing in the world which is this little green army men that are come to life and and uh, are trying to murder him. Here's a question I what, I was unclear about this and mm. maybe you can you can clear it up for me. The the reference to the handwriting and his mother. Mm. What what exactly is that? Well, it was the mother of the toy maker. That's what that's, it that sent it. Yeah, that's the toy because he assassinates uh, or he hits a toy maker. Uh, and uh, in the yeah, I thought then his next hit was supposed to be the toy maker. Was it not? Was it not? Well, maybe I'm I'm conflating the story in the the TV adaptation of it. Cause the, that opens with him killing the toy maker, which is, uh, who was played by Bruce Spence of all people. So did you know Elijah that this was adapted? Um, Eric told me yes. Oh, okay. And, and it's William Hurt, right? Yeah, yeah. William Hurt. Yeah. Did you happen to watch it? I found it on YouTube and I have not, I have not watched. I just started it, but I have not watched it. And it takes place in a house, not an apartment. 
No, it's an apartment. It's like oh, it a, a, like a, a like an, a, yeah, penthouse apartment or something. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's, it's pretty great. Actually. It, it's weirdly like, I wouldn't call it like top tier Stephen King, like total, but it's definitely, I think one of the most overlooked Stephen King adaptations that we've kind of stumbled across since we've well, been doing because the rest of that series sucks and no one talks <laughs> about it, but that Wait, one, Brian Henson that? directed it. Uh, it's got oh, no dialogue, which is really interesting. Uh, it's, it, definitely worth seeking out what was that series nightmares and dreamscape oh that's right it was on like yeah. tnt or something right it's, yeah it's you want to so avoid d- most of that it's so it funny pretty how how difficult television horror anthology is like there's it's only really been done right a couple of times i feel i mean obviously and when it's done right it's a classic you know it, then yeah. you that you're getting into tales from the crypt and you're getting into um, early twilight zone. twilight zone yeah yep Outer Limits, I guess. Outer Limits started out really great, too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't get a lot of that. Uh, So, Elijah, before you go, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that Lord of the Rings has hit its 20th anniversary. Yeah. And just how old that makes me feel. (laughs) And it it, it is marking passage of time in such a weird way. It's like, uh, you know, seeing people, you know, friends who have kids where I'm like, oh, they're toddlers. And I turn around and now they're driving or whatever. It's like that. It's really fucking me up. And I'm wondering if it's having the same effect on you, just like kind of recognizing that this monumentous thing that's in all of our lives and your life in particular. Yeah. You know, is is getting so old. We're getting so old. Oh, for sure. Um, It's wild. It's wild to be. I mean, anytime that. You know you're getting old when you can mark anything in the passage of 20 years. Right. Uh, so the fact that we are at this stage and and it has been 20 years since the release of Fellowship and and the, you know the the experience of making these movies is really wild, but incredible and an incredible thing to celebrate together. And and I think there might be a celebration at the very end. You know when the with the release of um, or the, the sort of the 20th anniversary of the the release of um, uh, Return of the King, we might right. do something which would be great. But actually. But basically, you're done with it, right? Well, well, <laughs> I, well, I, uh, whoa, 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 well, what? I don't know if this is the place to reveal this. No one uh, listens or to this. I'm even at liberty, but I, 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 get, I think I can tell you this part. There, there's been. Huh. It's widely known that there's obviously a lot of posthumous releases, um, manuscripts, things that have been found of Tolkien. Yeah, go on. There's another one that's been discovered. Um, oh come on! Really? Recently, yeah. Um, and it it includes Frodo and Samwise and Meriadoc and Pippin, primarily, and sort of details adventures that they took. So here's the thing: they're thinking about adapting it. So, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're thinking we, we might actually be going back. To oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Elijah. This is uh, that is. Uh our orchestra playing you off we're gonna have to we're gonna have to loop back around on that one but uh, okay well it's it's really exciting um well Frodo comes back it sounds it sounds pretty exciting and uh we go back to the shire and uh that there And now, here to perform his Oscar-nominated song, Trucks, based on Stephen King's Trucks, Mr. Daniel Danger. Hey, guys. Thrilled to be back. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. Yeah, excited to hear what you got for us, man. Yeah. 
Uh, for those of you who didn't hear last year's uh, anniversary special, it was called the uh, Skeleton Crew Stunt Spectacular, and uh, same general format as the episode you're listening to today. And uh, Danger and his wife came in and composed an original song based on a poem King wrote for that book called For Owen, and it was it was really lovely, and uh, our listeners really liked it. Uh, and you you offered to come back this year and do another one for uh, yeah for trucks. This could, this could be a regular thing. I have yeah. fun doing it. So. And you've got a you've got kind of a personal connection to Maximum Overdrive anyway. So yeah, this is one of my favorite movies growing up, and so you know totally. I've spent my spent my time with it. All right. Well, uh, All right. I guess we'll seed control of the stage to you, and we're okay. we're excited to hear what you've come up with. Yeah. All right. Someone must pump fuel Someone will not be hard All fuel must be pumped Sorry, there's like a horn sound or something? <laughs> I heard that, but I thought you were adding it in like no, it's a little it's bonus no. sound effect. Um, there's just like a parking lot. Sorry, there's loading bays and stuff. Um, let me just start again. Okay. still there yeah it sounds still there um are you expecting a delivery maybe someone's outside i mean i ordered a pizza but they don't honk the horn at you uh hmm. let me let me go see what's going on all yeah, right yeah, yeah do that we'll we'll hang out and wait yeah okay well it's great so far isn't it? yeah no it's lovely i can't wait to hear the whole thing hmm. there's no one at the door all right well well then where's the horn sound coming from i don't I don't. I don't see anyone. I'm gonna. I'm gonna step out. I'll be right back. Okay. What? You hear that? Yes. Shit. 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 Holy shit! Christ. Oh my. Danger. Danger. Um. A a a truck hit me. What a truck! A truck hit me. Like on uh, your porch? No, the park. The ow. Oh. Okay, oh, well, oh. let's uh, let's scrap this and get you uh, no, some I help. Wanna, I want to do the song. You can't do the song. You're injured. Danger! Stop playing the song. Oh, must be ow. How how what are, are you in? You're injured. Yes. Yes. Okay, what's injured? The bottom part. Your legs? Of what? Your body? Yes, the bottom. Ow. I'm upside down. Yeah, we need to call someone. I'm in the ditch. Someone must Okay, put the door. put the guitar down. Let's get you help. I worked I worked on Owl Week. 
Danger, it doesn't even sound good now, man. What, what, what condition are your legs in? What do they look like? Colors. What, what, what did the truck look like? We can tell the police what the truck the, looked the like. The Spider-Man guy. Oh, that's not good. Um, okay, where where do we need to send help? The, the, the ditch. The ditch? Okay, we're going to need... what What township are you in? How many ditches are there? Colorful ditch. Do we have do we have Danger's wife's number? <coughs> Danger. Danger. Oh no. Well, um. The King Cast would now like to take this time to remember the guests who were tragically killed over the past year of this show. Daniel Danger. And now, here to present Stephen King's Sometimes They Come Back, Mr. Will Wheaton. In Sometimes They Come Back, our protagonist, a guy named Jim Norman, is a teacher, and he has experienced some severe trauma in his life, including witnessing the death of his brother that he blames himself for not stopping. And he is teaching in a high school where we get the impression very quickly that it's a rough school. And we find out that he's in kind of a rough school because he's had some issues in his career that have maybe made him less attractive for what we would consider a good school. And he has to teach a group of like just bad kids. Now this kind of landed on me in a really specific way because in my freshman year of high school, I was put into a math class that I wasn't ready for in the first semester. Um, And when I went to do move on in the second semester, they held me back so I could do the math class again. The idea should have been take this math class and like, you're going to get better uh, at this. (laughs) What I got instead was a teacher who very clearly hated all of us. And he made absolutely no effort to mask how stupid we were, how, um, how he couldn't believe he had to waste his time with us. Like he was just, this guy was an asshole and should not have been teaching. So that memory of that kind of class was really specific and, and easily, uh, 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 reachable for, for me. Uh, Jim Norman is not that kind of teacher. He actually seems to really care about these students and he's trying to reach them and trying to do things. There's a couple of good students in his class and the good students there's three of them, they all disappear or die for some reason. And these kids start coming into the class. New kids come into the class. Here's the thing about the new kids that come into the class. They are the ghosts or the uh, 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 sort of like resurrected spirits of the greaser kids who murdered his brother. We never really find out why the greaser kids murdered his brother. Um, It seems to be sort of like incidental to the story they're just kind of like bad dudes um mm-hmm. this is this is a giant piece of uh hand wavium that i think stephen king would actually clarify when he is a more experienced writer i think he'd give us a little bit more reason about it but at this point in his career it's really clear the ultimate reason doesn't matter it's just that they are there so what's happening now is this 
we are barreling toward a confrontation where the adult Jim Norman is going to confront the ghosts of the children who are now in his class. It's a really interesting idea, right? Right. Um, uh, that all of this is going to happen. And in the course of this thing happening, Jim makes a pact with a demon. The demon uh, is is summoned. The demon kind of takes on the form of Jim's dead brother. And uh, the the kids are uh, like banished, I, I guess, to their home or, or whatever. But then <laughs> Jim finds out that things are not going the way he thought they were going to go. The <laughs> demon is extracting a terrible price. Yeah. The demon's terrible price is not necessarily that uh, he cl- he made Jim cut his fingers off, which he did. Mm-hmm. The price he is extracting from him is now this demon's going to follow Jim like a shadow for the rest of his life mm. and never go away. And right. the second to last line of this is uh, follows him saying, you know, like, we can make these things go away. We can get rid of these traumas, but sometimes they come back. Right. Which is such a great way to end it. Then there's another line that I really think the editor added where he's like, I think the nightmare is just beginning. It feels really, uh, it feels very like billboardy and unnecessary. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. No, sometimes they come back is how you have to end that. It's exactly how you end right. that story. And yeah, it's, how, sure. it's how I think very much a more experienced Stephen King with a little more juice and a little more like, what the fuck? I'm Stephen King. Be under, right. with, uh, <laughs> right. you know, in, in his in his in his in his uh, wheelhouse. I feel like yeah. he could do um, he could be like, yo, this is the way it ends. Yeah, hmm. so he's in a position to push around a few yeah, editors now. Yeah, for sure. Interesting to me to me that you mentioned like uh, that this is kind of the an early king finding his his voice thing and establishing things because the the bully greaser kids that's totally something he he does better in it right. Uh, and it seems and, like he must have known bully greaser kids when he was a kid. oh he must they have up, they come up a lot they're in they're in the body they're in it yep. um they're they're in like so many of his short stories. Um, like it's odd, you know, as a kid in the eighties reading Stephen King, Greaser Kids didn't exist in my community. Yet I was convinced that they were lurking in every alley <laughs> right. to shake me. They're gonna show up any day now. <laughs> yeah, you just would never trust uh John Travolta. Is, is, <laughs> never, is absolutely not. Imagine <laughs> if you were like nine and like three dudes with like slick back hair and leather jackets. Each of them look like they're forty and they're walking in on their first day at like school. I would Oh my God. I'd be like, here we go. Here it is. Stephen King warned us about this. So so there's, um, uh, uh, I have, I have critical thoughts about this, which are weird for me to have because I'm so much older than Stephen King was when he wrote this story. And when, when I was the age he was, when he wrote this, I could not have done this at all. So I just want to say like, how dare you, Will Wheaton give Stephen (laughs) King Okay. Uh, And yet just as a reader, these are thoughts that I had Hmm. as I, as I, as I read this book. Um, Sure. When I read it in the 80s, Night Shift was one of the very first Stephen King collections I read. The first thing I read was Different Seasons because I'd been cast in Stand By Me and I wanted to know what the body was. So I read Different Seasons and instantly fell in love with this guy's voice and the way that he wrote. Um, The way I remember it, Skeleton Crew had either just come out or was just about to come Mm -hmm. out at that time. That was 85 with Skeleton Crew. 
Yeah. So like, I can't remember if it came out because 85 is when we made Stand By Me. So I can't remember if it came out while we were in production or if it came out before. But anyway, I read Skeleton Crew right around that time and absolutely loved it. Um, And I was like, I want to read more of this guy's short stories. So I saw Night Shift in like the drugstore in that spinning rack of paperback books that doesn't exist anymore. And devoured it. And I loved this story when I when I was a kid. Because I remember feeling like, yeah, he got back at the bullies. And like, that was a theme in my life. As an adult reading it now, I see a few places where I feel it's extremely problematic. First of all, there is indefensibly racist language in this story. Um, that was so appalling. When I was reading it, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> So, uh, a bit of a, a bit of a hallmark of early King. <laughs> so I, I, I actually blacked it out in my copy of it. Cause I was like, <laughs> this is horrible. No. Also, you redacted it. I did. Yeah. Um, also he fridges the wife. Yeah. And for people who don't know what that means. There's a trope where you put a woman in a refrigerator only to let her out. Or you put a woman in a refrigerator to kill her so that the male protagonist has some motivation. The wife in this story exists only to motivate the husband, which I think is also a hallmark of early King's writing. Um, He doesn't write women well. And I think, and as much as I love him, even in his like Gerald's game, Rose Matter phase, I think he writes women very poorly. I do not like the way, I do not like his version of women at all. I find it extremely off-putting. Um, so in this particular story, I was just kind of bummed. I just thought like, show us more of their relationship, show us why she's important rather than the ownership patriarchal idea of she's my wife. Right. Which I think is, and I feel like it's a massively just unnecessary motivation. Also in the story, he, he puts on the mantle, the greaser kids are coming after his wife and then she's just dead. (laughs) i wonder how much of that is just like his perspective at the time and how much of that was like oh shit i can only write x amount of words for this titty mag that's gonna buy this or whatever yeah i very 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 much loved i mean i just loved the dreamlike quality of the writing the way that the entire thing moves from one scene to another without transition, it just tells you, okay, now we're back in the classroom. Yeah. I actually really like that. And that leads to Will's fan fiction interpretation of the entire story, which is probably not what King intended, but it's what I took away from it. I think Sometimes They Come Back is all about drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. I think in Sometimes They Come Back, Stephen King is showing us a character who never got past the death of his brother and Mm. blames himself for the death of his brother so thoroughly and so unreasonably that he has created a reality he cannot get out of. And that is a reality where these kids who were kids, you know, 30 years ago, just haunt him, haunt him in every possible way. And I suggest that maybe none of this exists, that all of this exists in Jim Norman's head. That's an interesting, that's very possible. I think that all of this is his psychosis. 
I think it's possible that he actually kills these kids. I think it would it's be, possible that he kills his wife. And it would be he fitting. creates these characters as a justification for all of it because he just can't fucking deal. And the yeah. demon that he summons is him. Yeah, there, there's many stories in this collection. I know we're running long, so I won't drag this on, but there are many stories in this collection that are told from the point of view of murderers. Um, there's the... Uh, there's the Strawberry Spring. There's uh, uh, the Manual of Flowers. All those are told from the perspective of murderers, and uh, so it wouldn't be all that far far fetched, I think, to say that this is a kind of a running theme throughout the the story. And it's speaking still, of uh, yeah, speaking collection. of uh, you know uh, being revisited by uh, maybe haunting elements of our past, you were telling us a little something before the show. And I want to make sure we get it in here before we run out of time. Oh, yeah. I know we're running out of time. So, but um, uh, you have as, an announcement to make. Yes. Yeah. So, like, as, um, as, I, as, I, as I mentioned, um, I played Gordian Stand By Me forever mm-hmm. ago. So, I have this really special, close relationship with the body and with Stand By Me. And I've been working on this thing. Um, that I'm really hoping is going to come together uh, that I think would be incredibly exciting. And this seems like a really great place. Oh, yeah. No, please it. tell us. Tell us more. Yeah. Okay. So in Stand By Me. Oh, shit. We're out of time. Okay. Listen. So look, we'll do it. Um, I'll be back. And we'll talk about it until later in the future. This was awesome, you guys. Thanks. Folks, at the sound of Rob Zombie, it is time for this episode's mid-roll ad read. Once again, sponsored by the good folks at the Athletic Greens and our friends at Tor Books. Let's start with the former. We use Athletic Greens products literally every day here at KingCast HQ. I started taking Athletic Greens because, quite frankly, I needed the vitamins. Lots of people take some kind of multivitamin, but it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients. This stuff doesn't taste like it's super healthy. In fact, it has kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery focus, aging, all of the things. It even supports mental clarity and alertness, which is certainly something I need while recording this show. Also, It's recommended by pro athletes, not just tubby podcast hosts. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's cheaper than purchasing all the separate ingredients yourself and all for less than $3 a day. One scoop and a cup of water every time, boom, you are done. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And today's mammoth anniversary episode is also brought to you by Just Like Mother by Anne Heltzel. Published by Nightfire, which is an imprint of Tor Books, Maeve and her cousin Andrea were raised in a cult as children, but managed to escape, but barely. Twenty years later, Andrea reappears in Maeve's life, and the two women begin spending more time together at Andrea's remote Catskills estate. Doesn't sound good to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That sounds like a recipe for disaster if I've ever seen Mm -hmm. it. Once there, Maeve is a front row seat to the successful fertility startup where Andrea works with baby obsessed colleagues. It's getting giving me kind of brutish vibes a little bit, and and uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, smidge. 
But the more Maeve is immersed in this world, the more she feels disconnected to her life back in the city. She will need to confront the terror of her childhood in order to transcend the nightmare still to come. Just like Mother is perfect for fans of domestic thrillers and feminist body horror readers alike. There's that Cronenberg. I knew I found that in there somewhere. Just like Mother is available now wherever books are sold. All right. I guess it's time to get back to the uh, the big show, eh? 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 Let's do it, eh? And now, here to present Stephen King's Strawberry Spring, Mr. Brian W. Foster. Good evening, everyone. Strawberry Spring, a short story by Stephen King that takes place in a cold New England town. Mm. A college town. What? No. Stephen King writing about a New England town? You don't say. First I'm hearing of it. It's It's about a college town, and in this college town, there's a thing called Strawberry Spring, which is basically sort of like a false sign that winter is over and 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 in this area the strawberry spring carries with it an aura and lore and 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 theories and old-timey tales and all sorts of things like that mm-hmm. our story is told from the perspective of a college student and he's a regular old guy he's describing the school he's describing the events that happen, the people at the school, the way uh, the weather affects the events at the school and the behavior and the things that happen. The kids like to hang out at a local place called The Grinder, which meant something else when I was growing up. And um, (laughs) basically, he's as he's just sort of describing um, the school and what happens and everything, we also have a Hey Jude reference. There's also a Hey Jude drop, by the way. Sneaky, Um, sure. He will mention different uh, characters, but when he often mentions female uh, students or peers of his, he will make some reference towards their appearance, almost one complimentary and one derogatory. And that kind of stuck with me as I was reading it. And as we go on, all of a sudden, there's been a murder in the fog. A body is discovered on the campus. Everything, everyone goes into panic. Who could have done it? Who was it? Everyone's looking at everyone suspiciously in the chem lab, you know, blah, blah, blah. And our narrator is, you know, just as confused and trying to find out what, what's happening. Right. Uh, you know, at one point, he, someone asks him, that the, you know, the policeman asks him if he has a knife. And he says, well, is this about the girl that died? And they're like, what makes you think so? You know, and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, what the hell? You know, he's just like, well, I'm just trying to find out what's going on. And then another body. And it's like, holy shit. And then another body. And basically, you know, over a span of time, these bodies keep popping up and they get multiple suspects. But then while those suspects are either in custody or on trial or whatever, they, another body happens. Mm-hmm. And so they have to let those guys go. And then at, by the end of it, by the time our, our lead guy has left school, um, there's been a bunch of people killed, usually at, during this time of Strawberry Spring. And then as he's older and he gets married, uh, he's driving home one day and sort of has a um, fugue state. Uh, If anyone remembers the popular AMC program, Breaking Bad, um, he has sort of a fugue state. And when he gets home, he finds out that um, there's been another murder and he can't account Uh for where he was last night. Yes, and his wife is in the other room crying. And we come to realize that our man can't remember where he was when these things happened because he was slipping into some other state jack the ripper style Mm. because this takes place in like the 60s so it'd be like you know the next 
the next, uh, you know, century version of Jack the Ripper. Right. And at the end of it, bing, bong, boom, our guy's the guy that did it. And then you go back to read it again and you can see some of the hints along the way. Like I yeah. said, one of them for me was the way he would almost derogatorily refer to some of the women's. He would say like, oh, she was cute, but she was fat or whatever. And then she ended <laughs> up dead. Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. So that's that's. That's a strawberry, that's strawberry spring forever. I think my, my issue with this story is that it's very obvious where it's headed. Um, mm. It's a good, yeah, I, good concept, but um, having. That's what I told you yesterday. I yeah. said, I, I picked, I picked up on it pretty quick, but I did like how he got there. Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's entertaining, certainly. And, yeah. and fun that he brought in spring heel Jack as sort of the avatar of um, this serial killer. You know, if you're into Jack the Ripper shit or any. You know, Spring Hill Jack is like borderline, like a cryptid thing, you know, like yeah. his whole mythology was that he could like, like, didn't he have, wasn't he like literally spring, spring healed? So it was like, you know, he could bounce, he bounce could around. Yeah, from yeah, like building police officers would be like, we had him in our sights, but then he leaped <laughs> over a garden wall that was 15 feet tall. And you're like, yeah, what he's like Trinity fuck? in the opening of the Matrix. Right. I right. think you're describing um, Tigger is is what I'm picturing. Well, this was like Tigger. Only well, we don't know if he had a tail killer. or not. Um, there's <laughs> yeah. nothing in. He was bright screen. orange. Yeah, we do know that. Yeah. We do know. Yes. He allegedly <laughs> had literal springs in his heels, which is just absurd. If you had fucking springs in the heels of your boots, you would not be able to just jump over a 15 foot wall. They'd send you all over the goddamn place. Hey, if he didn't <laughs> turn out to be so problematic, Oscar P- Pistorius was capable of a lot mm-hmm. with kind of spring blades <laughs> on his legs. Yeah. You know? and, and same with uh, my good buddy, Inspector Gadget. Oh, you. Oh, so here we go. He's named. Yeah. Right. Listen, you know what? You know what? You know what? Wampler? I'm sick of this. Yeah, well, Wampler. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, good for you, Wampler. Yeah, what you did know I do? everybody? No, I was saying Wampler. I'm sick of Eric name dropping. Oh, and you know, it's like, okay. oh yeah, we, you know, right before the show, he's like, oh, I just got off the phone with Gilbert Gottfried, and we're like, no, you didn't. <laughs> well, that that's in poor taste. You can't do that <laughs> stuff right now. Come on, man. That would be cool if we got him on the show, though. It, I it wouldn't would, be. It would be a hell of a get. At it, this point. I wouldn't be yes. surprised if Gilbert pranked all of us. To be honest with you, that yep. was his. God bless. He was him. the best. Yeah. But listen, so, uh, while, while did we I got leave you, anything out? No, you didn't. And in fact, we're running out of time. And before we get there, I want to. I want to get this out. Like yeah. you, you recently appeared on our Patreon doing a a really amazing episode on uh, Stephen King's revival, which obviously we're big fans of here. Uh, the listeners over there were. Uh, very excited to hear you on the show. Loved the episode, and oh, were uh, like instantly demanded that we we bring you back. Um, and obviously, we have. Won't be your last time either. Oh, sweet. But but curiously enough, we've kept in touch in the interim. And my understanding is that you have been conducting your own experiments with electricity, uh, a la revival, which is yes. pretty interesting. And that you're you're here to. Um, conduct one of them today in fact you wanted to do it on the air one you haven't done before i i asked for if we had a little extra time and you guys were super gracious uh and so well yeah, we love that's stunts cool. yeah oh, yeah. stunts are cool i mean the stupid people tricks you know no mm-hmm. one on here is doing it i'm i mean whoever i'm following i'm guessing it's probably john ham um <laughs> you know he probably yeah. didn't show up with anything cool yeah so basically if you could give me a sec i'll just plug this in but what i realized is you know charles jacobs all that stuff, that technology was from the 60s. Mm-hmm. They don't have the stuff that we're that you know we can do now. If he could raise someone from the dead, even if only for a moment to view a hellish vision of the future we all must face inevitably once this hellish uh, life is done, um, 
I thought, you know, there's 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 G there's G spot force technology now. There's all Ooh. kinds of things. So let me see, and you guys can you this is audio only, but I think you'll be able to get a good idea. One second. Just get the ah, just get the other plug here, and then all right, let's let's fire this bad boy up. See if oh shit! Oh my fucking eyes! Uh. God damn it! Ooh. Uh. The KingCast would like to take this opportunity to amend our previous In Memoriam segment to include Brian W. Foster, who also died tragically during this recording. Rest in peace, gentle angel. And now, here to present Stephen King's The Ledge, James Beard-nominated author Mallory O'Mara. Okay, so the ledge starts, and some guy is boning the wife of this really huge skeevy douchebag. Whoa. Scott, did you get your own slide whistle? Yes. (laughs) You got a fucking slide whistle? Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? You motherfucker. Okay, so anyways, this guy is boning the wife of this huge skeevy douchebag, and I'm pretty sure if you have a bathrobe with a dragon embroidered on it, the government should take your wife away. Scott! Oh my god, stop interrupting me! I only did that one because I actually do have a silk bathrobe with a dragon embroidered on it. (laughs) Did the government take your wife away? Not yet. Not yet. Okay, well, don't tell them. Okay, so he's young. The day's young. So basically, so the douchebag in the dragon embroidered bathrobe has found out that this guy is boning his wife, and he's like, "All right, fuck you, pal." He sets him up to be arrested by the police with a bunch of heroin in his car. <laughs> Scott, stop. <laughs> okay, so if he and if he doesn't tell him where his wife is, so he's like, "All right, if you don't tell me where my fucking wife is, I'm going to kill you, or you're going to get." arrested by the fucking police and he's like okay but i won't do this to you if you take this wager that you can walk all the way around this narrow ledge on the outside of my building i will call off the police and the drugs and i'll give you twenty thousand dollars and you can fuck my wife in total freedom <laughs> scott <laughs> stop that one it wasn't me. that one wasn't me eric what did you both buy fucking slide whistles i'm an innocent party on on this and i don't appreciate i don't the think there are any innocent parties on the fucking king cast okay <laughs> okay i'm in the middle of talking stop I it saw, i saw eric at the slide whistle store when i was buying my slide whistle so he's full of shit the slide whistle store yeah it's called slideys <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> what the fuck? Anyway, this guy agrees and he goes to, he's like, all right, I really want to fuck your wife and I want $20,000 and I also don't want to get arrested. And he starts walking around this ledge and it's pretty shitty. It's, you know, stressful. Oh, yeah. Uh, that would be the appropriate response. Guys, I'm in the middle of talking. Stop. So, and he's uh, going around this ledge, and he keeps getting harassed by pigeons and the wind and shit, and then he does it, and he fucking does it, and he's like, hell yeah, I'm gonna get $20,000 and fuck this guy's wife, shit yeah, and then he gets in the room, and he's like, hey, I did it, and the guy's like, by the way, I killed my wife, and it's very, uh, very sad, yeah, uh, okay, okay, this is a serious moment, serious moment, guys, calm down. My wife, 
<laughs> you tone it down with the I, I get it that I've been harassing you with the slide whistle and you want to get back at me but this is a serious story I've been on mute this entire time you have not I could see your little the little things moving on your recording thing so he's like oh shit you killed my wife and then the guy's like and now we're gonna fuck with you and he's like just kidding and he throws the giant bag of money at the guy's fucking uh, bodyguard whoop oh whoop Jesus punches the shit out of the guy's bodyguard and then oh okay oh scott this is getting really annoying it's not me eric one of <laughs> it's you not me it, i have a, a rogue whistle somewhere that it's mallory somehow uh i've been able to do that while, while talking uh, no, well, no, yeah how, how could i slide whistle while talking okay well the next time the slide whistle goes off i'm gonna talk over it so you know i'm not slide whistling so you're just gonna talk for the next next minute now you got the floor. Okay, that's what I fucking thought. Anyway, so he finds out the guy, he baits up the guy's bodyguard, and then surprise, surprise. Whoa, oh, 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 see? Uh, what? See? I talked while. Scott, the- oh my god. Okay, then there must be Eric. Uh, not me. Not, Guys, I you're making talk. me run out of time here. You're making me run out of time. Okay. You're making so- yourself run out of, out of time with this, this foolish behavior. I'm in the middle of talking. How could I slide? I don't, I only have one mouth. Okay, you anyways, were- so <laughs> he, he, he makes, so he's like, all right, well, you killed the love of my life, and uh, I fucking hate you, so now you have to go around the ledge, bah, 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 and that's when the story ends. Uh, oh my, guys, okay, this is getting absolutely she ridiculous. She has recorded the sounds <laughs> of the slide whistle. On what? <laughs> On what? On a, on a tree in your yard, on your computer or something. I know all. But on a shit. tree in my yard. Okay, this is getting ridiculous. I'm. Oh my god. Well, okay. All right. Well then. If, all right. If you. Oh, fuck. If, all right. If you won't stop playing this fucking slide whistle, then I guess I'm just gonna fucking leave. Okay. All right. Fucking. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, okay. It's a moment of reflection for everyone. Think about what happened here. If only we had a slide whistle version of this this song. (laughs) Mallory has once again derailed the show. And now, here to present Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man, Pitch Perfect 2 star, Flula Borg. Hello, The Lawnmower Man by Stephen King. Um, in this story, a man named Harry Punky uh, is having lots of grasses uh, in his lawn, and he needs to make those uh, cut it so big, so he hires a small baby child to uh, ride on a machine to do it. But then, oopsie-daisy, here comes a dog, and then whoopsie-doubles, here comes a cat, and one of them is exploded by the lawnmower. And so <laughs> so then he's very sad. Harry is very sad, and he sits and he watches uh, Karl Jastrzemski hit lots of bumps and singles on his television for many years. And his grasses grow big and his daughter grows buxom, I think. I think, don't know what this means. She has a horse. Uh, and so she's going on many dates. And then he's like, it's time to lawn my mow. Mow my la- It's time to cut my... And so he goes to a newspaper and finds a place uh, where pa- pastors are there. And the pastors are like, we'll cut your lawn. He hires the pastors. The pastors do not show up. But a giant man with big cleavage... And a butt hanging out and nudity starts to run around and eats all of his grasses up and down, left and right, north and south. And then as a concerned citizen, he calls the police, not the nude man 
with the penis out, but uh, Harry Perry calls the police. And then the nude man says, I could hear you, even though there's a loud lawnmower outside, I can hear you while naked and eating grass is calling the police. So now I eat you and I put your uh, schlong in a bubbles bath outside the end. Uh, well, once again, you have nailed it. That is exactly <laughs> what the lawnmower man is about. Yeah, and, and what's funny is that there's no exaggeration there, really. This is one of the weirdest Stephen King stories, and I and mo- very famously adapted into a movie. It bears absolutely no what? resemblance to this uh, story whatsoever, and yet is its own unique brand of fucking nuts. Yeah. They made mm-hmm. a film from this? Oh, oh man. Did. Oh, would, would you would you imagine the cutting edge technology of a uh, uh, virtual reality in the early 90s would be a perfect oh. pairing for the story? Oh, yeah, it's got Pierce yes. Brosnan. It's got Jeff Fahey playing sort of a Lenny from Mice and Men sort of character oh. in overalls. And uh, the uh, Pierce Brosnan is the uh, the scientist who is using virtual reality to like give people super intelligence, basically. Which he gives to Jeff Fahey, who is named Job, by the way. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this was like one of the first movies to use a a shit ton of CGI. So it's all like very early 90s screensaver sort of CGI that at the time was mind blowing to audiences. So it's definitely something I feel like you would be interested in. But what about the nude man eating the grass? (laughs) Well, we're we're still unclear on that. (laughs) No, uh, the uh, Job is the lawnmower man in question in that adaptation. That movie was so far removed that Stephen King doesn't give a shit about you doing different things with his movies. He doesn't care. He cared on this one. He sued them to get his name taken off of this movie. It was that. (laughs) Wow. Uh, This story was very weird. I (laughs) I was hungry. I was nauseous. I was happy that in Germany, most of us don't have lawns. Uh, (laughs) Just a very strange experience for me, I have to tell you. Are lawns outlawed in, in Germany? No, they're not outlawed. Um, it's just, you know, we like to, we live in stacks. You know, it's like, what's right. that film with that Ready Raya player? Like, we live in stacks except safe. <laughs> uh, you know, some people call it another apartments. virtual reality movie. It all goes back to VR. Oh, man. Squares one every time. Yes. What was that one with, uh, what's his name? Canoe Reeves. He's like Johnny Pneumonia. What was that yeah, one? Yeah, you got it. Yes. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So good. No notes. Yeah. Done in Thank one. Thank you. Oh, very so, wonderful. You've done a few episodes of the show now. You're one of our most popular guests. Um, I'm curious where you would rank specifically against Maximum Overdrive. Was Maximum Overdrive crazier than The Lawnmower Man? Which one's... Yeah, because with with The Lawnmower Man, I can imagine Stephen King has just taken a poop and then is writing this and then has a snack and he has written this. It's you know not so long. <laughs> With with maximum overdrive, you know he was directing the film. I I assume he was snorting many kilograms of cocaine, and he was like shooting in like North Carolina for many months. This is a long time to wake up and say, let's still do this project over and over again. <laughs> no, no, man, you can write this in eighteen minutes. So uh, <laughs> yes, yes, maximum overdrive. I don't remember the question, but it's definitely stupider. Yes. Mm. <laughs> as an overall what did you think of him rolling in uh all this like greek mythology into the oh, story because wow, this... the lawnmower man works for pan apparently oh right yeah. pan pan's a man with a goat feet and he was talking about cersei and then if someone has bunions i think i think lawnmower man had bunions he kept talking about his toes are weird or something <laughs> a very strange who oh okay that makes sense. Okay, so he had <laughs> hooves. 
He had hooves, and he was just munching. Is munching grass like code for something? <laughs> uh, usually, yes, but I don't think so here. <laughs> ah, okay. I didn't know if it's like a metaphor. Like, I didn't understand it because the lawnmower means, you know, democracy. Is this like the animal form of Stephen King stories? I wasn't sure. <laughs> you know what? It, you could be right, because there's also a wide, like, political undercurrent running under this whole thing. The guy's oh, bitching about his neighbor being a Republican yeah, and that's shit. correct. It's, and the Democrats. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And then he loves his baseball, the socks, the red sock. He loves those guys. Right. Yeah, I don't that's not political. No. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you think that the very large fat lawnmower man at the center of the story, do you think he was a started his career as a lawnmower man as a nice skinny guy and he just ate a lot of lawns? Or do you think, think that he was fat from the beginning? Oh yeah, like oh like baby I was born this way, Lady Gaga. Yeah, I mm -hmm. think yeah, I think he was like recruited, you know, like to speak of baseball. I know you guys have these farming teams. And they're like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that man can make a nice curl ball. And that man can make a nice mm -hmm. fast pitch. I think they found, the, I think Pan found this man just like munching grasses by himself for fun, like outside of Topeka, Kansas, and said, let's hire you for my pastoral grooming services. Right. And you will eat uh, mole carcasses or whatever the hell that oh, is. You swerve. You will swerve to eat the mole carcass? That was very... Oh, speaking of political, they, there's caucuses. Oh, and I want oh. to thank Dirk Nowitzki. Um, at seven foot to hit such nice three foot. I also want to thank Keith Ice Snapple. I tried you once and I urinated for hours. <laughs> and finally, I want to thank the diarrhea that I had in grade three, which made me to avoid my pre-algebra test with Herr Schnecki. That's what... Okay, everyone, have a very nice... Okay, bye. bye. Thank you. Bye, bye, bye. Oh, this way, oh, this way. This is the exit. No left. Okay. All right. Bye, everyone. Oh, that's not my trophy. Oh, I shouldn't be here. Oh. And now, here to present Stephen King's Quitters Incorporated, Werewolves Within director, Josh Rubin. Thank you so much. The clapping is deafening. Stop. Just stop. <laughs> Thank you so much. <clears throat> So uh, Quitter's Inc. is a story I was first introduced when I watched uh, my favorite anthology horror film, Cat's Eye, as in Stephen King's. And James Woods <laughs> played Richard Dick Morrison, uh, mm. who was a uh, heavy, heavy smoker looking to stop smoking. And so it was brought to his attention that there was a quirky little company called Quitter's Inc. where he could go <laughs> and he could learn to stop that pesky habit. Yes. So he walks in, you know, he, he, he talks to these like ma kind of mafia, you know, uh, Donati, mafia. <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to get you to stop smoking, guaranteed. And then suddenly, like when Richard gets that itchered, uh, he realizes he might be in with some some bad people who who will make him stop smoking, like uh, by any means necessary, including mm -hmm. electrocuting his rabbit turned cat for the film. But let's not. <laughs> yes. Yeah, on the surface, it's a very nice organization that teaches your little furry pets how to dance in a in an electrified room. That's that's a fair description of that. Yes, <laughs> I wish they. I wish that King mentioned the song. You know, I guess there was no song in the short in the story. It was just like, look at this rabbit. You know what I mean? Here, look at him hoppity hop. It doesn't hurt him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, what I also appreciate is that there were there were you know it, there were like five threats. It was like the first time we're gonna kind of shock you a little bit. 
Then we're going <laughs> to kind of shock your wife. And then the third time, it'll be the both of you. And then the fourth time, we're going to break your nose. And then the fifth time. <laughs> Uh-oh, it'll be your boy. Which, by the way, how many times did King drop the R-bomb? It's like, wow. Yeah, um, yeah. Very yeah. unfortunate. It was pretty. It was like a, oh, who boy? Yeah, and that, that's also a questionable uh, thing to actually pull into the adaptation, which they kind of do. But that's how they, they tie in uh, Drew Barrymore into that that story. Yeah. They yeah. do it, but I, they don't I, really I, say it explicitly, which makes it even fucking weirder. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, boy. Like they don't ever come right out and say it, right? Right. right. Special needs, yeah. but it's like heavily implied. It's so fucking weird. Oh God, that's right. Well, you know, she didn't have any sloppy kisses. She just talked to a cat and thought there was a troll in the wall. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> what do you think of James Woods in the adaptation, aka Lester Diamond, the pimp from Beverly Hills? Well, <laughs> it's a loaded question politically, but I mean, I thought he was uh, to watch James Woods in his in his like um, his twitchy heyday, mm-hmm. eating that little smoke and like you know uh, uh, slinking around his den, looking at the rubber boots under the thing uh, <laughs> or whatever in the closet. Right. I thought that was a real treat. I mean, almost as much of a treat as like the the uh the friar club's alan king um uh-huh. in the de niro role i'm sure he did that and he was just like oh i can't wait to tell bobby d that i you know <laughs> that i get to be like him like it's like you know i i'll get to don rickles table because i'm in a quirky little tale um like, i wonder if he like invited everyone to go see cat's eye and made everybody think it was going to be like a mob movie and they're like what the fuck is this but um, yeah. you're barely in this. And now yeah. I just now I just want to track down Robert De Niro and ask him if he's ever seen Cat's Eye. <laughs> oh my god, absolutely! Oh, five times I watched but it yeah. with my wife, Grace Hightower. I heard I, things. I love, I love, I actually love Woods in this movie just uh, for all those reasons you uh, um, you stated. He's just like the perfect guy to be trying to kick a nicotine habit, yeah. uh, and. Uh, uh, yeah, so that that is a separate the art from the artist uh, thing, if I've ever heard one. Oh, yeah. Amen. I don't know. I don't I don't particularly like I don't like seeing James Woods now, but I honestly don't have much of a problem seeing him in older stuff. Right. Right. Those movies were made before I knew all about that shit. And I, I still think have all those memories. You know? off, uh, John Carpenter's Vampires. It's all it's been a while. You I, was like, I did watch that the other day and it does not hold up very well. Yeah, okay. very upsetting. Very not upsetting quite stuff. the same caliber as a as a cat's eye. No, <laughs> certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, were you ever a smoker? I was never a smoker, but uh, almost everybody else in my, in my house is. And I actually remember a period in the eighties when my mom was, uh, per my dad's uh, advice, uh, imploring, really stop any way you can. We got her the books, we got her the patch, we got her some small device and nothing seemed to work. And we were all mm-hmm. like begging her, begging her, uh, please stop. She's still around and still smoking, you know, just, just chowing down those Kent Kings outliving us all. I don't know how it's possible. <laughs> if only Quitters Inc. was real and your dad might be missing a finger, but, uh, yeah. uh but mm-hmm. she would, she would have left the habit behind. Yeah. And, and that and, pet and rabbit she, is long gone. <laughs> Absolutely, be oblivious to the fact she's up. She's up upstate right now, feeding stray rabbits with uh, no missing fingers and somehow not that bad of a cough. I don't get it. She's the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds exactly like my mom. She's she was uh, a heavy smoker all through her entire life since she was like sixteen or fifteen or something. Yeah. Has tried to give it up, never gave it up. Still heavy smoker to this day. Uh, the healthiest lungs of anybody in our family, probably. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, it's unfair. I don't 
It's unfair, a King story frankly. in and of itself, but a sweet I one. Know. It's more of a Horton in Atlantis than a, you know, Tom Gordon, you know? <laughs> totally. And hey, why, why don't we got you here? I need to squash a rumor or oh. have it have it revealed. I, I understand okay. that you may have some important news for us today. Is it true that you have secured the rights to the Darkman franchise and will be launching your own reboot shortly? Uh, okay, so uh, very loaded, uh, extremely loaded question. And I'm going to answer you. And I yeah. will answer you honestly, okay? Oh, that's I, the... Oh, oh, oh shit. Yeah, you're getting played off. I'm sorry, we're going to have to... Play off. Well, you know what? Darkman um, will find a way, you know? <laughs> I, I'd like to think. Lab is Brother with me is someone else. <laughs> And now, here to present Stephen King's I Know What You Need, Tigers Are Not Afraid director, Issa Lopez. Hi. I Know What You Need is a story about... I'm going to go through the plot very quickly, and I'm not going to spoil the ending. It's about a college girl who's studying for an exam in sociology. That's very mysterious, because I think later in the story, it's said that she's majoring in math or business, and I don't understand why she is so worried about the sociology thing. Anyway, she's stunning for this. <laughs> and a classic Stephen King creep comes to her. We know the classic. They're always wear glasses. This is very <laughs> mysterious for me because he's... I, I First of all, I was so nearsighted when I was a kid and I used very thick glasses. And I was such a fan of his books and, and, and the, the creepy guys always looked like me. I, I, I never looked like the pretty girl or the hero. I always looked like the bad guy. But the funny thing is, Steve did too. So what the hell was that about when I <laughs> presented? Okay. So the guy is thin. He's bony. He's wearing a jacket that is too big for him. He has these uh, thick horn rimmed glasses. And uh, he asks her for to go with him for some ice cream. And uh, she says no, because he's a creep that looks like Stephen Lee. And uh, <laughs> but then she realizes that she really, really wants this ice cream. And still doesn't go with him. But then when she goes for the ice cream, she finds him there. And this story is going to be about uh, a young girl that slowly realizes that there's this guy that always always knows exactly what she needs. And it's the absolute dream of any, not only a woman, any person, I think, to be with someone that never wants to do something you don't want to do, that Mm -hmm. never wants to see the movie you don't want to see, that he only or she only wants to do the thing that you want to do. And it's perfect. It's too damn perfect. Until she finds a closet where he keeps, among other things, a Necronomicon <laughs> and a voodoo doll. As you do. Always a red flag. <laughs> As happens, right? You have to be very careful. This is before Tinder, but it still feels like <laughs> it. Anyways, she finds a voodoo doll. I said I was not going to give you spoilers because this is not the ending, but it's close to the ending. <laughs> she finds a dolly in that in that closet Um a voodoo doll is not not only a voodoo doll with her own hair, but from when she was 
an 11-year-old. So this guy has been following her since then, and he took her hair when she was 11. Another red flag. (laughs) This story is. Yeah. So what I find amazing is a bunch of things here. The story has too many yummy elements. It has this <laughs> need for us to be completely and absolutely understood. But at the same time, it directly calls that rape. The word yeah. rape is in there. And yeah. the word rape is used about the fact that someone knows mm-hmm. absolutely what's in your skull, what you want, your innermost desires. And that's, in the words of Steve King, rape. It's insane. But yeah. it's not completely wrong. It's, it's funny, you know? How... Yeah, it's, it's odd. No, go, go. No, no I, I, I tracked the exact same thing where I was just like, ooh, is it? I mean, it's manipulation uh, in the modern parlance, gaslighting. There's some gaslighting going on because he's not being earnest and sincere and he's manipulating her into doing what uh, perceiving him as the ideal person. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I got kind of stuck, stuck on that, that term too. Cause it was, it felt like it was an over uh, reach on the word, but you're right. It isn't exactly wrong, but so yeah, there's something about it that sticks out to me still. What I find amazing there is that the situation of both characters is tempting for at least this reader, who we've established, I'm a creep. So right. <laughs> for me, it's tempting. The idea you wear glasses that, or wore glasses. I, I, you know, now I have LASIKs, but in the yeah. end, you always wear those glasses for the rest of your life in your soul. You never get rid of them. So yes, I am that person. Right. So on one hand, being the object of desire, right, mm-hmm. that is met with anything and everything one wants is very tempting because guys, let me tell you, love life is not easy. <laughs> and usually yeah. that's not what no you way. find. <laughs> On the other hand, this idea of knowing exactly what the other wants, that's mm. even more tempting. And I'm thinking of other uses <laughs> immediately. You know how useful would it be to sit in front of someone for anything and just know what they want and they what I they know, want. No, but haven't haven't you ever dated someone that's like you know subservient to a degree where it's just like you might say, "Where do you want to go for dinner tonight?" And they'll say, uh, "Wherever you want to go, what movie yeah, you want to go see tonight, whatever terrible. movie you want to see." That's, yeah, that's, that's awful. The opposite I of this. <laughs> Which is yes. that, that, these, that's the opposite of this because yeah. that's not sexy. <laughs> that's never gonna no. work guys yeah get girls anything in between or the combination of those two or anything uh, with any gender swing you want to take that's not sexy going no let's do whatever you want to do that's not sexy what works in this short story is the fact that she doesn't have to say it she doesn't even know how to know it for it to happen that's what's amazing. The idea of being with someone that will solve the question without asking it right. is what's tempting. 
Well, I think I'd still be creeped out, dude. A little bit, but it is sexy uh, to be with somebody who seems to want and love the same things and be as passionate about those things. You know, it's not whatever you want to do. It's like go you you meet somebody and you you kind of hit it off and or whatever, and they go, "My favorite restaurant's this," and you're like, "That's my favorite restaurant." You know, my favorite movie's this. That's my favorite movie. You know, it's like you, there is something that fires off, like, "Oh, we're we're compatible." So there is there is something to that, which I think Issa's hitting on is that, uh, uh, you right? Know, that that that's the attraction part. It's not that this dude is just willing to be a mat or whatever. It's that he just seems to be vibing with her. The problem yeah, is, I, is he's I, not I hear doing you. it earnestly. I, I, I definitely hear you. I just feel like I would. I'm so suspicious as a human being. I'm, I'm like <laughs> right. suspicious and and cynical as a as a human being to begin with. Like if I met someone, and I was just like, um, you know the same exchange happened that you're just talking about with like favorite restaurant, favorite movie, blah, blah, blah. Like at a certain point, I uh, like, I wouldn't get through three of those before being like, hold on a fucking minute. Like what is going on here? (laughs) There's gotta be a give and take, you know, just by what's, what's disturbing too is the idea that we are going to inevitably fall in love with someone Mm -hmm. that absolutely replicates or interests and uh, and desires, but here's the trick: isn't that basically falling in love with yourself? And who mm, wants yes. to do that? Yes. Well, I would Scott, agree. Scott, Scott does. Scott wants. No, <laughs> no. My 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 wife and I don't agree on much, uh, but we agree on the big things. You know what I mean? Right, and so right. so it kind of works. But we have our own interests, and right. you know, but I've absolutely dated people that you know were. But what I found interesting in the end of this story also is the fact that he's the monster, right? He's the mm. one that has been stalking her to give her exactly what she wants, by the way. How horrible is that? And this woman who, and they've been together at the end of the story maybe for six months. I don't remember specifically. But she realizes when she starts put it, putting it together that she knows nothing about him. She doesn't know what he wants, what he likes. So who's the monster exactly? <laughs> this woman who has been absolutely satisfied in everything she wants and doesn't know the first thing about him. She never cared. And he, there is this guy living and dying for her and she's just taking it. And he's a monster? I don't know. Interesting. Don't know. Well, we are about out of time here. But two things before you go. Uh, one, you have the best voice in the business. You should have your own podcast. I love listening to you talk. It is, it, 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 you are hypnotic to listen to. Um, please consider launching your own show. And, and let me guess so I can come listen to you firsthand. And secondly, we understand you are uh, working on the new season of True Detective, a show that Eric and I are both big fans of. We're, we're very hyped to hear that you're involved. And we were surprised to learn before this recording that you were going to go ahead and tell us how the new season ends. So um, what can you tell us about that? I can tell you everything because it doesn't matter who the killer is. What matters is the journey there. So I can tell you right now who the killer is and true detective. I will tell you. Thank you, guys. And now, 
50% Children of the Corn, Ms. Winter Mitchell. Okay, so yeah, Children of the Corn. It's kind of a compelling premise. Uh, you, you've got mm-hmm. these kids who are, they have some resentment. I think it's boosted by <laughs> like a demon. Anyway, mm-hmm. they take over and they really rain hell. They've created a situation that this town is now adultless. Um, mm-hmm. We don't really know. It's the guy who walks behind the rose. He walks. <laughs> we don't see the guy. When the guy does materialize, spoiler, he is like an 8-bit arcade game. Um, <laughs> midway through, you know, we get an intro, which is great. We're in the middle of nowhere, America. It's landlocked. It's really obvious. Corn is the deal here. I want you to know that corn figures heavily in this film. And we've Wait, got Linda. Hold on. Yeah. You're, you're recapping the movie and not the short story. I don't have to recap the short story because the movie is the movie. And I don't, I, I, I think Mr. It King sounds would, like you're here today, frankly, to play by your own rules, but I it, respect it, it. Yeah. I think you know that about me already. And that's why I'm here. I'm going to continue. Uh, Please the, do. The Peter Wharton's here. Which you know mm-hmm. he's got to show up at some point. Linda Cam, Linda Hamilton, uh, and Linda also- Hamilton as well, and Linda Hamilton is here as well. Uh, they're a bickering couple, and he's a doctor. And did you say whatever- Linda Hamilton? Linda Cam- Linda Hamilton is here. Uh, okay, uh, they hit a kid immediately upon sight. Um, they don't mm-hmm. slow down, and they had time to swerve. Uh, good news. He'd already been dead. Why he was standing up in the road, we don't know. Anyway, there's Isaac and Malachi who are running shit. And honestly, I actually have a side story. Isaac parked my car at Sunset Tower about 10 years ago. He figures heavily in my personal life as well. I tipped him well. It really was heartbreaking. Back to children. Wait, what? Wait, wait, that's wait, wait. We've got to examine that. That's a true story. That. That's a true story. I'm not, that the wasn't true. that played fun. Isaac or the actual yes. character of the child. Okay. I thought you meant a corn child. No, not a corn child. <laughs> out of the movie. And that's actually the premise for Children of the Corn 7 back on the strip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, actual, at the John Franklin parked my car and I felt really bad about it. Anyway. Oh, my God. The kids, Job and Sarah, Sarah's psychic, so she can actually, uh, it's not timely. She can't have like a psychic vision 20 minutes ahead so they can do shit. She can have a psychic vision in progress, which don't help a lot. Um, you know, to me. <laughs> I think it's just called seeing. Looking at she's things. just seeing and looking at things. Uh, <laughs> this is the world that DeSantis wants. Uh, children who are rebuking everything and all about like some corn god yeah. uh i always religion. wonder religion yeah. right uh i kind of wish this was made in la it would be children of the avocado anyway uh <laughs> the sickle the sickle mm-hmm. is a big a lot of people are killed by sickles in here too uh mm-hmm. peter horton Hold really it. thinks after the entire movie like throughout the entire movie peter horton is like they're and linda hamilton they're in the middle of this town that's abandoned and they keep meeting weird people and for some reason they're just not leaving 
They just don't want to go. And nothing mm-hmm. seems really strange. They're just super inquisitive. At one point, Peter Horton walks in while the congregation of small demons are doing whatever they're doing and sacrificing. Somebody's about to turn 19. Uh, mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. says, you know, hey, 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 what's all this racket? So, like, it's really ineffective for me it, it, it at one point he's talking to uh isaac and turns and runs into a pole uh larry moe and curly style and you wonder <laughs> what the choices were made here children of the corn um it's mass psychosis or paranormal activity we don't know mm-hmm. but isaac is the only one committed to the theme everybody's wearing like slave clothing which is unsettling <laughs> for me, but uh, it feels like Malachi is like, I'm just going to look like a normal kid. Somebody here has got to look like 1984. Uh, Isaac seems fine with that. Um, Isaac's got this like a boy George hat on the entire time. Rocking it, by the way. He is rocking this hat, by the way. <laughs> he is like working this look. And the entire town seems to like you know, have anointed him. We don't know his origins. He kind of just showed up, right? And decided right. like this. Right. And they don't like for the remaining kids to have fun. So they've been tortured and traumatized. Their parents ripped from them, which in theory sounds kind of cool. But in this said, it's like they are not really allowed to enjoy themselves nor have fun. I I, I feel like Children of the Corn as a as a as a story is very sad and depressing as a movie it's worse it's one of these movies as that i watched it it came from you know the story disciples of the corn there was an actual short film that was made that is even worse than this movie that had money um so i it's 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 i don't know um why you gave me this movie but the good news is that this again plays to my the running theme I always bring this up that Mr. King does that I love which is give the main characters just sheer audacity it's the audacity to just walk into somebody's home unannounced it's the audacity to just overstay your welcome it's the audacity mm-hmm. to assume that a mechanic has diesel and a working telephone <laughs> It's just sort of like that constant need for the main character to sort of allow themselves to not see the absolute craziness that is happening around them and try to find reasoning in it. Those are the things that I love about Stephen King main character. So that's the one thing I will say that I do like about this horrible movie I had to watch again that I thought I'd put out my mind. Well, All right, guys. Um, uh, yeah, this has been great. So um, I'm going to well, head out. With the, the orchestra. I, didn't even uh, I, I brought my own orchestra. <gasps> Is she playing us off? <laughs> Sounds like it. And there she goes. And now, here to present Stephen King's The Last Rung on the Ladder, Hawaii Five O guest star Kate Siegel. <laughs> oh my God! Hi guys, thank you so much. I'm just um, really excited to be here. You all look beautiful, and the last rung on the ladder. What does it matter? <laughs> Who writes these jokes? Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, last rung on the ladder is a beautiful little truffle of a story in Night Shift, which is about 
uh, the suicide of our narrator's sister, but it's told through the memory of one summer afternoon when they were children and they climbed up this, I think he says 60 foot tall ladder to a beam yeah. mm-hmm. over the hayloft and they would jump and take turns. And there was this one like heart stopping moment where the older brother brother sees his younger sister climb almost all the way up the ladder and then the ladder breaks and he is rushing back and forth, piling hay up underneath her. And then he tells her to let go. And basically he, at the end of our story, reveals that he received a letter from his sister, having lost touch with her over the years, that said, I feel like it would have been best if the hay hadn't caught me or something beautiful like that. And he would have known had he not moved so many times or like, you know, cats in the cradle moment with his sister have known she would have committed suicide and went to go save her. But now he lives with regret, as we all uh-huh. do. Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned that that sixty foot thing, which like stuck out to me because I'm like, that's really tall. That's, that's really not. A lot of feet. That's that's not. That's not like an average barn. Like I remember like the first time I read through this, it's like, oh, ladder. it's just a yeah, it's just a, a regular barn. If if this is because I think he even says like seventy feet, like once you're actually up on the beam and yeah. jump off into the hayloft, and it's just like that. That's like a skyscraper of a barn, it's isn't really it? Scary. There's so much in this story that is terrifying without any genre moments right right like this idea because he basically describes the younger sister's suicide without ever showing it to us because he takes such care to describe her leaping off of this beam and like swat and dived out and so when you find out how her life ended you almost picture this young girl jumping off the insurance building it's a really beautiful piece of writing yeah what's the tallest structure you ever jumped off of kate Oh God, my own reputation. No, maybe um, into some water. Maybe you know, just, presumably oh, oh, it I wasn't cement. One, oh my God, when I was making one of those, uh, like everybody does it, drive across country in your twenties moments. Mm. There was a cliff near uh, Mount Rushmore, and I jumped off of it into the water. That was terrifying. That's when you get that like lake enema that you can never unhave. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I jumped off a cliff at a uh, uh, at a lake somewhere around Austin. My my predominant memory of this was, well, two predominant memories. One is that when I got up there, it looked way higher than it did yes. from the water. And two, when I jumped off, my balls came up like whistling <laughs> around my ears, you know, like uh, just flapped up and it was just swaying in the breeze all the way down. It was like I had a, a like a, a loose parachute on me. Very upset. Really vivid. That's as vivid as Thank King you. himself. <laughs> and just as beautiful as, as King described oh, the yes. sister's balletic leap off into the hay mm-hmm. bale. 70 <laughs> feet up, baby. Yeah. Wow. I don't oh know why they didn't just call the story Wampler's Balls. <laughs> Lady, <laughs> if King's working on to that. <laughs> yeah. King's yeah. working on it. Ever since he came on the show, he right? I, we didn't tell anybody, he but he did now, right? he, he did say after when we stopped recording that that he uh, he has been inspired. <laughs> Wampler's Balls is his new muse. So. <laughs> Yes. Wow. Always great to be here. Just a <laughs> yeah. We run a classy joint here. That's why you keep coming back. That's right. Yeah. Also, last time you were here, you were talking about cock holsters and whatnot. So you're Is in no position. True? There's no proof of that. <laughs> <laughs> we understand that uh, you have a, a, a theory that you would like to share in relation to this story. Is that correct? Oh no, I would. Sorry, no. I was just giving you that feminist theory bullshit to see how hard your eyes would roll. <laughs> I don't actually have a feminist. I totally theory. bought it. I'm just like I was I excited know. for it. That's seriously. 
It's on brand. Yeah, no, it's totally on brand. I have nothing except that I actually love this story because it's um, it stays with you that like that feeling of regret, that letter that he got, the concept of moving and missing out on your childhood and your family. I think it's a beautiful little story. Yeah. Well, there's this really (laughs) haunting moment whenever because she breaks her ankle when she's a child. Like he saves her life, but breaks her ankle. And and she has this moment. It's this moment, sweet moment between brother and sister where she's like, you, you're, you know, I knew I didn't need to know that there was hay beneath me. I knew you were my brother and you were going to protect me at all costs. And that's what really twists the knife whenever he gets this letter where it's just like yeah. she's been trying to reach him for, for years, he says. And he's like always intends to like, oh, I should let her know I changed my address and never does. And uh, and so you kind of feel like he was her last safety net. And then when he kind of disappeared from her life, then she didn't have anybody there to protect her and she's okay. And she's not angry about it. She's just reserved to it. And that's really even more hurtful, you know, if if, if I was in that position on this now that you're talking about it. Yeah. Because I think suicide is a human right. Right. Like, I don't think you should be able to take your life if you want to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You want to get into this discussion? when we only no, got five minutes we'll to work get it with? next time. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, while you are here, though, uh, we understand that, um, you know, uh, House of Usher has had a lot of uh, secrecy surrounding it. We don't necessarily know what sort of adaptation this is going to be of the mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe uh, material. But you, you have told us that despite um, Mike Flanagan's wishes. Uh, you are going to rip the lid off the entire plot line uh, right here on the KingCast today. Yet another KingCast exclusive. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. What do you got for us? I'm happy to tell you everything that's been going on on the set of House Ooh. of Usher. Can't wait. The first <laughs> thing I wanted to talk about was, oh, oh my God. Oh, shit. That's we ran out of time. Oh. Yeah. Well, thanks, hmm. guys. Thank you so well, much. Well, yeah, it was lovely, as always. But we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. And now, here to introduce Stephen King's The Man Who Loved Flowers, Kate Siegel's co-star, Rahul Kohli. Hey, hello, bruv. Um, sorry, I was just painting my miniatures, and uh, uh-huh. and uh. I got I got my my football football game on, and I'm. Uh. Oh man, I'm. What, you got a cold or something? You you sound a little. <laughs> no, my brother just um, I quit smoking, so I got me throat all scoffy hmm. and ready to be talking about this um story. What the fuck? What? Hmm. If this were actually Rahul, you would have said in it by now. I want to stop. It wasn't for well, you. Well, well, well. with it. If it isn't Kate Siegel back for more, what's going on here, Kate? I just, Rahul was so intimidated to go after me that he backed out at the last minute and was like, Kate is just too talented and too tall, much taller than me, Rahul Kohli. Mm -hmm. So she should be allowed to talk about two stories. It sounds, quite frankly, uh, very cowardly. Very cowardly. Very plausible. But but I can't fault the logic, though. So... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good well, point. Actually, I have his notes here. He sent me a screenshot of his notes app about this story. Oh, okay. oh great. Excellent. Okay, so what he has here is flowers, question mark. What is New York in the 50s, question mark. 
What's a flower vendor? Should I be a flower vendor? Vendor, that's a funny word. What kind of shoes was the guy wearing? That's what Mm. I don't know what to do here. Yeah, and he he, and compelling. Yeah, and he just kept sending me the uh, the MP3 of the Beatles Maxwell Silver Silver Hammer too. I don't quite understand what he was getting to with that. But performance uh, art thing is he in his Andy Warhol stage? He's done. Yeah, I think it's just because they're from England. I think that <laughs> that's. I think we've really cracked this one. Yeah. All right. Well, so <clears throat> since he's not here to talk about the story, why don't you uh, give us a little rundown sure. on what this one is? Um, so this is a little slice of life by our friend Stephen King, where you start with a man, a young man in the prime of his life, and what feels like walking around in the golden hour of like the most idyllic town you can imagine, and everybody he passes is like how beautiful young love is and how wonderful life is, and he stops to buy flowers for somebody, and the flower vendor is like, well, if you're buying them for your mom, you can get the cheap flowers, but if you're getting them for your true love, and he's like, that's me, true love, and he buys all these roses, and he sees the woman. he wants to give flowers to in the alley and he comes up to her and he hands the flowers and he's like i love you norma and she's like well my name isn't and then he reaches into his jacket and he beats her to death with a hammer classic (laughs) so you know do you know that old tale (laughs) it's tale as old as time in fact it's a wonderful misdirect this story is because you he hears while he's at the flower vendor like the radio's on and the radio's like all bad news it's just like War in Vietnam, uh, just like there's a series of hammer murders. There's, you know, the these yeah. the, the Yankees are losing. Like, it's just all this stuff. It's all bad news and buried in there. It's just like, oh, in the series of ha- hammer murders. And then he, he is the murderer going around with, yeah. with the hammer. And you there's all see it from moment, his. There's a great moment where he reaches into his coat and touches something. And like, if it's your first time, you think like, maybe it's a ring. Maybe he's getting ready to propose. What's going right. to happen? It's his hammer. Yep. Oh, it's his hammer. I thought you were yep. going to say it was a saxophone. A hammer makes more sense on the, on the context of what was said before. It was actually Wampler's balls he was touching. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but clang, you know clang, this, motherfuckers. You know, this reminded me a little bit of it was, um, th- did you ever see The Voices, the Ryan Reynolds movie? God, no, I am not up on my Reynolds filmography. This is this is about <laughs> ten years ago. It was the follow up from the director of Persepolis. So it was the animated movie, and then mm-hmm. she made a live action film that's great, and it's all told from this happy go lucky, like leave it to Beaver kind mm-hmm. of point of view. And uh, he's a serial killer, and you don't okay. really realize it uh, at first, and then he's on meds and when he's on meds, like everything's happy and bright and colorful and like a 60s sitcom. And then when he goes off meds, it suddenly turns into like seven and it's like this wonderful, you know, again, it's a point of view story, which maybe that's why the story reminded me of that. Cause you're in this guy's head and he's just going around absolutely in love. And then it's not until (laughs) it's not until the, the hammer comes out that, that uh, he kind of remembers what's going on. You know, what was the, um, what, collection is the milkman series in skeleton, skeleton crew, crew. Oh, yeah. i freaking love that that's what this reminds me of is how much yeah. I love the milkman spike and the boys out oh. there with the the tarantula milk the tarantula love that, milk. Dude. and i had questions about the cyanide gas milk like i don't know if that shit works but i do <laughs> yeah i don't know how is he even bottling that i mean exactly questions questions i have mm. sure <laughs> well this is fortuitous because you were you were cut off on your last segment it was, and, yeah. and we're not able to uh, reveal what you were going to reveal, but I'm going to switch gears here um, 
that was clearly not meant to happen. But um, I do understand that you want me to about Rahul Kuli's personal life. Oh, yeah, that'll work. Um, Mm -hmm. You got anything really humiliating? Oh, my God. Do I have news that you guys need to know about him? We do. (laughs) Well, I mean, he's a cagey about this, but I really want to tell you the truth because I just trust you guys not to put this out there. And um, Uh we can still hear you. Keep going. It's more that. Like, you're gonna you're gonna have to talk louder. It's the orchestra. Just keep talking. Kate. Kate. We've, we've lost Kate. All right. And now presenting Stephen King's One for the Road, Mr. Matt Fraction. Hey everybody. Uh, so this uh, kind of works like uh, an epilogue, I guess, uh, of sorts to uh, Salem's Lot, uh, mm-hmm. uh, where we uh, we're in a little uh, we're in a bar in a little town not far uh, from Jerusalem's Lot, and uh, uh, a, a fella in the middle of winter uh, stumbles in, uh, uh, freezing to death in a blizzard, <laughs> and his car has broken down. He has taken a wrong turn. His uh, wife and young child are in a a car that is slowly running out of gas on the side of the highway. Uh, in the wrong part, <laughs> wrong part of Maine, and uh, 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 this uh, townie and uh, his uh, bartending uh, friend hop in the snowplow and go try to uh, recover these uh, city slickers uh, from becoming uh, vampire chow. Um, and it's a it takes place a couple years, I think, after Salem's Lot. There's kind of like they kind of have a little idea as to what happened, but the the important takeaway is that uh, 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 well, we might be done with Salem's Lot, but Salem's Lot ain't done with us. So. Uh, yeah, it's sort of an epilogue, and it's interesting that it closes this book out when uh, Jerusalem's Lot opens it. This is the epilogue. Salem's Lot is like the body of the the thing, and Jerusalem's Lot, which is the first story in this collection, uh, is sort of the you know the the prologue to the yeah. Thing. And, I, and this is not the end of Salem's Lot characters and other Stephen King stories, as as some of the Dark Tower readers in the audience know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, something that I really like about this is that the end of Salem's Lot is you know, this kind of triumphant, you know, moment for uh, Ben Mears and, and uh, Mark Petrie where they return and like burn the town and and you take out, it's you know, a little midnight massy actually, now that I think about it, but they take out all the hiding places for the vampires and you're just like, yeah, they won. And this one set, as Matt said, like a few years later and uh, maybe uh, maybe they didn't quite get all them vampires because uh, things things are are happening out in the, the snow in this burnt out town. The, the, yeah. it, it kind of turns it in a little bit of a, like there's a little bit of folk horror to this, right? Oh like yeah. Of, no, for sure. town, you know, it's a, it's a city slicker. Uh, uh, what are you dummy? What are you doing driving and, you know, taking the wrong turn and going off on plowed roads and walking. He's got, there's a, a lot of business made about like the flimsiness of his coats and his shoes and his kid gloves. And he's got frostbite and shit like that. And just the kind of ridiculousness. There's like some great line in there about like the only thing worse than someone from New York is someone from New Jersey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is so happens. true when you think about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, so there's the kind of towny thing about like city folk uh, don't know how to live out here. You know, it's, it's, it's cool. It really leans into that kind of folk horror school right. of, 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 of things and kind of, 
yeah, it's it's a cool and that that, that the town has been burned down and, and people still disappear. If there's just this kind of thing that everybody knows about, nobody talks about, which is yeah. Always well, and I also like that there's like a little conflict between the two main residents, right? Where one of them kind of believes, like I've heard the word vampire thrown around. I don't know, maybe maybe it isn't, but maybe it is. And the other one's like, you idiot, it's like vampires aren't real. And then the the story also was one of the creepier Stephen King stories, where when mm-hmm. they go back to find the wife and and uh, daughter. Uh, they find them. They do. They are just not in the car anymore, and uh, they are. They may be a little thirsty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got a little vamped up. Also, They're a little vamped up. Coy. Also, uh, also uh, looks in the the uh, cars. Cars are bad news in Stephen King stories. Once again, always the bad. This news. one plays all the hits. Yeah. Have, are you uh, are you a Salem's Lot fan? Uh, yeah, Matt? yeah. Although, like, I haven't read it in forever and rereading this for this made me want to go back and reread it because it's it's maybe been 20 years since mm. and the new movie's coming you know like uh, 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 I never like a huge vampire guy I guess is kind of it but it's sort of that's such a I don't, yeah no I, I haven't read it in a long time and this made me want to go back and hmm. reread it all so like I think that's kind of the best like you know, hey, as a sales right. as a sales tool, you know what I mean. Like this is great. It's made me want to go back well, and ch- check it out I again. I think Scott and I are, are both kind of the same mind that the vampires aren't our favorite of the kind of classic monsters, but right. King handles them very well. Like when he has dipped into the vampire pool, mm-hmm. it, it's been really creepy. And the, the end of this uh, uh, story is is kind of a perfect example of that because the way that he describes the the uh, well, the husband ends up being seduced by the vampire wife, you know, and, and mm-hmm. gives into the whatever the hypnosis of the vampire. And then uh, they showcase one of the townies almost doing that to the little girl who just yeah. wants who just wants a, a, a hug good. and a kiss or whatever. And it is the creepiest yeah. goddamn thing. Yeah. Yeah. He even says, like, it's not the it's not the wife. It's the girl that haunts me. It's the, the girl I still see in my dreams. It's the little girl. Right. Like, it's yeah. Not best. yeah, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 great. It's and to, to you know, folk horror is always, you know, the, the outsider going in. These are the insiders who know better. Right. And but who can't let a wife you can't. You know, they, 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 these two guys who are both kind of widowers. Uh, I don't know if the bartender is or not, but like our, our protagonist in the short is a widower. And like, right. It's very much about we can't like you know, we have to do the right thing to help this ridiculous idiot who's gotten into this mess. Like, it's great. It's just a cool, uh, he's a great character. It's a great, it's a great thing about neighbors and about how we take care of one another and all that kind of stuff. Like it works. It's a great, it's a great little story. I agree. I like this one. I like it more than Jerusalem's lot. I think in fact, yeah, which is weird because Jerusalem's lots of more, uh, Lovecraftian of the two. And that's usually my bread and butter, but aren't uh, aren't they trying to turn that like into a show? They did. It. It's on Epics. Oh, it's uh, there's 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 season of it out there. It's pretty too much TV. Too much TV. Yeah. Yes. There really is. There really is. Speaking of having enough time to do things, where are you at in your Dark Tower reading? People have been asking when you're coming back with for a new I, episode. Uh, uh, I am uh, still in Wizard and Glass. And oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You're being played I'm off. Getting, I'm getting played off. I'm so you're sorry. getting played so off. And now, here to present Stephen King's The Woman in the Room, Kate Siegel's husband, Mike Flanagan. There is a woman in a room. There is a man visiting that woman in a room. They're related. He doesn't want her to live. He decides Mm -hmm. to kill her. And that is the woman in the room. (laughs) Good, and we're done. We're we're wrapped up early on this one, guys. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 is a short story.
Yes. It's a very short story. And I watched- How do you feel about this one? I, I, I think it's really interesting. It's, it's written in a style that's completely unusual for him. Like it's yeah. written in this staccato, almost like kind of, it's if a jump cut could be represented on in prose, it would, it would be this story. Like right. it's just like rough and raw and the transitions are brutal. And it really is this dude trying to decide whether to euthanize his sick mother. Um, and he's just thinking about it. And then he goes through with it. And it's this very matter of fact, and it's kind of, it's rough. I mean, it's, it's an emotionally just kind of like, oof story. Mm. Yeah. Um, There's something about this one that stuck with me a lot because I reread it leading up to this as well. And the imagery of the mother, cause she does, she's in a hospital or she's in um it's essentially a hospice. She's dying of cancer. She's being eaten alive by it. And, but she doesn't have teeth. And so she sucks on her medication pills and lets yeah. it dissolve in her mouth. And I remember, have a very distinct memory of reading that. And there's something about that that stuck with me from, I must've been 10 or 11 when I read the story for the first time um, about the image of her, like, you know, uh, taking these pain meds that he's feeding or one by one, you know, that's going to knock her out at the end. Yeah. It made me think about the chapters in on writing where King talks about his own mother and being at her her deathbed. So it, it feels like he's working through, I think a very dark, and relatable, you know, question that we all have when we, we watch someone we love suffering and, and wondering about whether it's kinder to let the suffering continue or not. And so then I watched the movie um, because this is, I think what's, what's almost more notable than the uniqueness of, of the short story is that mm-hmm. this might be the most um, kind of important dollar baby in the history of dollar baby short films, because this absolutely is Arabont made this. Yeah, right. Part of his career um, as a half hour short that you can watch on YouTube. So I watched that. And it's interesting because it's like he expands on it and he added a whole element to the movie that isn't in the book where you get to see the narrator's uh, profession. And he goes and he talks to a prisoner um, about uh, he's he's an attorney and he goes and he talks to him about about killing, basically, like he's trying to rationalize it and and understand it which i thought was a really interesting new gear that's not on the page um, right but it, it need to see a little fledgling darabont flexing the same muscles he's going to use on shawshank um in that he's going to expand and and slightly change the material to kind of what while honoring the heart of the material like you see right. why king responded to that short and i thought that was pretty fascinating a funny little side note to this one is that um for years like but before i really knew my film shit or what or or my stephen king shit you know i'm still i'm still acquiring knowledge at this point but i would routinely get this short story mixed up and the and the adaptation that came out of it the, the idea that Frank Darabont directed an adaptation of The Woman in the Room confused with an entirely different movie called The Lady in White. Are you all familiar mm-hmm. with that? With Lucas oh, yeah. Haas? Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. The Lady in White. Yeah. And um, I'm realizing as we're talking about this, because I did not reread this short story <laughs> before recording this, that I made that mistake again as recently as yesterday. Because <laughs> I was like, I wonder what Lucas Haas is doing now. Like, I, I had that fucking thought so i guess that hasn't entirely left me but <laughs> still don't still don't entirely know my shit the lady in white's very stephen king-ish so i, I totally sure. get it it's like 
and it's very Amblin E. It's one of the reasons I love that movie so much is it's very much a product of its time. Kind of like um, the Monster Squad isn't mainstream, but it's also Amblin adjacent, and so is uh, the Lady in, in White. Yeah, totally. Same vibes, but yeah, I'm really curious about this because I was looking it up, and I'm not a hundred percent sure. But the way the the legend behind Darabont getting the rights to this reads, it almost reads like he is responsible for the Dollar Baby program. That he didn't write into Stephen King saying, "I want to be a part of the Dollar Baby program." He said, "Hey, I'm a student. I want the rights." And and King thought it was a good idea to give student, you know, the you know right. the rights for cheap. Yeah. So I wonder if, if Frank was like directly responsible for it or not. Well, we'll get him on the show one day. <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll, uh, bully that information out of him. I'm sure. Right. I would be crowing about it if I was responsible for that. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's not just the fact that it's early Frank Darabont. It's the fact that King allowed this to be released and it came out on like a VHS with another King short, mm-hmm. um, another dollar baby. And, so it kind of like made the legend because I think almost everybody that's a student filmmaker or a beginning writer or anything, they they know of the Dollar Baby program. They've heard of it. And and I think it's mostly because this was released and then Darabont went on to make the best Stephen King, you know, movies. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. He just exploded out of this. But it's it's so it's a fascinating thing that he ended that he ended the collection with this story, which is such a it feels like an experimental kind of style of writing for King and that it then this little kind of epilogue story at the end of this collection, then launch pads, you know, one of the most successful and incredible, you know, uh, film ad- adaptation careers. Um, I think mm-hmm. that we'll ever see. It's right. a really neat little story. Now you, we are running out of time here, but my understanding is that uh, you have a dual purpose for being here today, that you may yeah. have something you, you wish to reveal to our, our audience. Is that yes, correct? It's absolutely correct. You know, a, a lot of people have been asking me for, over the last year what the next Stephen King adaptation is going to be. You know, there's mm-hmm. speculation, you know, out there that it's like, is it The Dark Tower? Is he remaking The Langoliers? You know, is mm. it something in between? And oh, I, I hadn't finally, heard that one. Oh, yeah. People people love to speculate on the Twitters. And I, I finally am ready to announce the new Stephen King adaptation, which is probably the most exciting announcement I've ever been able to make. So oh, that's that's great. And it's perfect because this is the last story of the collection. So you're you're going to be ending the this whole uh, anniversary bringing show the, on it. Yeah. Oh, bringing it in for a landing with some right. big news. Yeah. Yeah. Hit, hit us. Yeah. Well, it is it is my absolute honor to tell the world that I'm going to. Uh, he didn't make the buzzer. Shit. Are you guys serious? I don't know, man. I, I think the orchestra's going. So. Can anyone hear Mike? What? Oh, can you guys hear me? It's really amazing news. Is it the Langoliers? Many thanks to everybody who participated in this year's anniversary show. It was a doozy, but man, I'm so grateful for everybody taking part in this. And I'm so grateful all these recordings are, are done with. This was... Uh, this is quite the project. I seem to recall last year saying, we're not doing this to ourselves again. And then sure enough, we did it to ourselves again. It's just it's just too good of an idea. And oh. sure enough, it was enormously complicated to pull off. But, um, you know, we got everyone in here that we wanted to talk to, I think. Uh, everyone did a great job. Didn't have any blow ups on the show this year like we did on 
on last year's anniversary episode. So right. I'm, I'm really happy with how yeah, it Yeah, it was pretty it smooth out. sailing, all things considered. It was mostly just kind of a pain in the ass for, for scheduling. Oh, Jesus Christ. I know you're in there. That? I know you. I'm coming in now. I'm coming for you. What? Is that fucking Morgan asshole. Freeman again? You're going to blow me off. That's it. They oh. said, there you what are. There the you are. What the fuck are you doing here? Yeah, you know, <sighs> what the fuck am I doing here? What the fuck are you doing here, you no-count two-bit podcast host? You're going to blow off motherfucking Morgan Freeman? What the hell's We're the matter with you? We're recording our anniversary special, Morgan. That was last year. Anniversary special? I've been waiting for a full year. I've been on the phone for a full year. Don't you know I got things to do? I got jobs. I got people trying to get a hold of me. Get That's where you've been? That's been wh- on hold? That's right. I've been on hold this whole time. I've been trying to talk about the reach. I've just been waiting to discuss the reach. You told us to kiss your ass and wandered out of the room last year. You weren't on hold. And frankly, your publishers probably should have gotten you off the phone sometime in between last year and right now. That's oh, just so you're going, you're going to blame him? You're going to blame Morgan Freeman now? Listen, I'm here to talk about the reach. I'm so blaming Morgan good. Freeman's publicist and rep. Don't bring, don't bring my publicist into this. Don't bring. What's, what's their name? What's their name? Oh, don't worry about my publicist's name. Don't worry about my my publicist's name is fuck you. That's my publicist's name. How about that? <laughs> okay. Now listen. Let's talk about the reach. Come on. I'm ready. Is that I'm just ready. the first name or the first name and last name? That's the last name. Fuck. Okay. Don't worry about it. Okay. I'm not in. I don't want to get into this with you. Okay. This is some bullshit. Okay. All right. So what are you Stella, doing here? All right. So Stella Flanders, Gold Island. Okay. There's no goats. First of all, there's no goats. That's what I want to talk about. I was all set to talk well, about it. Well, man, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but we're not doing Skeleton Crew. We just wrapped up Night Shift. Skeleton Crew's yeah. done. It's in the past, man. Listen, you, you're going to do what I say because I'm Morgan Freeman, okay? I, I, I could put a thunderbolt up your ass. I'm God. Get busy living or get busy kissing my ass. You know what I'm talking about? Now, come on. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Here's here's what we're going to do, Morgan. Um, if you, if you would mind just hanging on the line for a little bit longer... Uh, we're going to finish up this outro and we'll come right back and let you talk about the You reach. want me to hang on? Just, oh, no, this is what just you did go last sit in the time. other room this and wait. This what you did last time. You told me to hang on the line. That's some bullshit. I'm not going to fucking put up with this. You kick my... Well, anyway. He's kind of pushy, isn't he? He's, he's getting a little too big for his britches, it kind of seems like. Anyway. <laughs> right. Great anniversary special, though. All yeah, in. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. We hope you did, too. And uh, everybody except for Morgan Freeman. Yes. And while you're here, uh, be aware that this Friday on the KingCast Patreon, we're going to be dropping the season finale of Shelbyville. We've been dropping the other episodes into the main feed as this week has gone along. And uh, hopefully you've been keeping up with those on our special anniversary week. But get excited about um, the episode that's dropping on Friday. Uh, Mr. Elijah Wood is joining the game for the season finale. And uh, boy, you are... You are going to be excited to hear what he gets into on the show. Lots of mischief. Yes. Once again, he's going to face down a giant spider, but this time he's doing it with the Shelbyville kids at his side. Going to be a blast. Can't wait for everybody to listen to it. What was his fucking name? Like Thaddeus? (laughs) First time Elijah had ever played a tabletop role-playing game. Um, He had a fucking blast. He will be back on Shelbyville at some point. We'll have further announcements of that uh, soon. But for now... um, Thank you for coming to our second year anniversary special. This was a lot of fun and um, y'all have a great week. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>